The Solid 7 Podcast is a proud affiliate of GORUCK. GORUCK designs and builds the toughest gear on the planet, tested and proven at thousands of GORUCK events held all over the world and led by current and former Special Forces combat veterans. The GORUCK brand stands for Building Better Americans, the Special Forces way of life, and a life-or-death approach to building the world's toughest gear. Visit Solid7Podcast.com and click on the GORUCK link to learn more about their gear and events and a portion of every purchase and every event registration you make will go to support us here at the Solid 7 Podcast. Well, hello and welcome back, world, to a Solid 7 Podcast, a better-than-average podcast, if I do say so myself, recording from my second location in three days. All thanks to Hurricane Ian. This is not a show about nothing, but it's also not a show about any one thing. Each week I get together with a guest, talk about whatever is going on in the world that interests us. And that's what we're, we're going to do this week. Now, listeners, if you've been listening for a while, you've probably heard me mention before Paul Harvey's, I guess these days you would call it a spoken word. I don't know what you would have called it when he did it back in the 70s. I think it was a speech to a like an FFA group or something. But uh he did this great, you know, spoken word speech, whatever, about God made a farmer and all these reasons God made a farmer. And I would never, uh, you know, try to correct or besmirch the late, great Paul Harvey, but I feel like he missed a reason, uh, which is someday the Solid Seven podcast would need just a, a stellar guest. And so God made a farmer. And we have him here for you today. Jeff Smith from Colorado Craft Reef. Welcome to the podcast, man. Hey, brother. How you doing? I am uh, better now. <laughs> so I was pleasantly surprised. I had like two alternate recording locations planned today to make this happen because uh, our internet hadn't come back. And I uh, stopped by the house real quick. And lo and behold, the blue light was staying solid on the modem. And uh, we're up and running. So, you know, you get to okay. stare at my, I don't know what that is, mauve uh, curtains behind me here. And uh, get to do this thing from the the comfort of my own home. Now, you've uh, you're you're familiar with the podcast. You've listened some, and so you know that we are, of course, fueled by Jocko Go. And so, uh, yeah, I don't even. I, it's always nice to get to to share Jocko Go, like teach a guest about Jocko Go. But you're already on the path, man. Like you were primed and uh, and ready to go. So uh, let's crack these bad boys That's open right. and get after it. I'm ready. Here, sir. And of course, great. And, and if it gets real, and if it gets real slow at the ranch, I have RTDs in the refrigerator through the wall right here. So if I really got to fuel up, I think I have the banana cream and the chocolate RTDs on hand and the protein. Nice. Yeah. I, for the powdered milk, I like the banana cream. That's my go-to, but in the RTDs, man, the vanilla is so good. I mean, it really is just melted ice cream. There's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. I mean, Based on the nutritional information, uh, I'll drink yeah. it. It's fine. <laughs> well, and what what you need there on the ranch is easy access to protein. So I'm glad that that the guys over at Jocko Fuel are are filling that gap in protein in your life for you. Yeah, I mean, you know, I uh, did a tour at a big Anheuser brewery uh, one time, and they said that you can live on beer, but they don't suggest it. So having a uh, good alternative than beer and summer sausage, because that's one of our products with the company is uh shelf stable summer sausage but to have a legit protein drink that doesn't taste like you're chewing on a chalkboard is uh 
pretty incredible. Yeah, no, it's it's amazing what they pulled off. They just keep knocking it out of the park. And that's uh, kind of how you and I ended up here. I think you found me through uh, Brian B. Little, Brian Littlefield from uh, Jackal Fuel coming on the podcast. And uh, you reached out and, uh, you know, beef right there in the Instagram name. So I was I was sold right from the jump. And, uh, and yeah, well, and I, I know you got some boxes, you got a box of steak because, uh, I did make the mistake one time of going on a podcast with a guy that had never tried the beef. So it kind of made me half as effective as I should have yeah. been on the marketing side because he's like, yeah, I'm sure the steaks are awesome, bro, but I've never had them. Uh, <laughs> so what did you think? Oh dude, it was it, a, I, I had to, like, I broke rules in my, uh, Ford owner's manual handbook to keep the beef I still have frozen because we were without power for a while. So Ford says I couldn't use the AC outlet and the escape to power the fridge, and I risked it for the beef. So all the, all the remaining beef from that box is safe. I, I don't want anybody to lose any sleep over that. Uh, but, uh, you know, we started cooking stuff up. Uh, we had already started to work our way through the box, and then I'm like, well, we got to eat some of this. We're going we're gonna to have a beef party here before the, uh, the hurricane. But uh, so we've gone through uh, a few pounds of the ground beef, which we go through. That's a regular staple here, like burgers and taco meat, probably weekly. And we're, we're kind of snobby about it. I spend some money on it typically. Um, and then, uh, I haven't made it to the, uh, the ribeyes yet, the bone in ribeyes, um, which, I mean, that's the star of the show. That was a good looking box of meat, but those ribeyes look amazing, but I've got an awesome audio engineer here for me, uh, Art Pipok that uh, mixes the show for us. And uh, he works for, you know, the occasional Jocko Go and now uh, a giant ribeye. So they're just still on ice waiting for him and his wife to get over here for those. But I, I cooked the strip steaks. I'm normally a pellet grill guy. I'm normally a coffee rub guy. I didn't want to mess with any of that. I wanted to, to taste the beef. So I, I did a reverse sear, salt and pepper only, little, uh, you know, nice pan sear at the end with some butter. And man, they were fantastic. I'm a ribeye guy. I, I like more fat than a strip steak has. Um, mm -hmm. but as strip steaks go, they were, they were excellent. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. We have a lot of people that'll ask us, well, how are your ribeyes? I'm like, well, hell man, if you're a cattle rancher and your ribeyes aren't any good, like you've got way bigger issues. So what I encourage people to do is try the burger. Yeah. Uh, it's probably the most telling story of the burger, uh, you know, growing up, I grew up in Eastern Oregon. And we grew up hunting and fishing all the time. We live like 30 miles from the Columbia River. So a lot of salmon, a lot of elk, a lot of deer. Mm -hmm. But my mom grew up in a farming community there. And when we started the beef company and I took some beef out to them, her comment was, I haven't had burger with this flavor since I was a kid. And uh, I was like, okay, so we're doing something right. You know, we're keeping that traditional flavor. We're getting something that people are used to having. And maybe bringing some producers closer to the consumer, but also bringing some consumers back to agriculture where they can engage yeah. because there's a ton of movement in the agricultural community for uh, educating the consumer, which in my humble opinion, sounds a little demeaning. Yeah. It sounds a little, uh, a little arrogant. Uh, so we, we don't want to educate the consumer. We want to engage with them. We want them to know what we're doing on the ranch. Uh, you know, some of the stuff's not rosy. You know, some of the stuff is literally life and death. Yeah. Some of it's not great. But we want people to engage with us and know that we're doing the very best we can for the animals first. And, you know, our message is not, hey, what we do is so different. Our message is 
we are sharing what most of agriculture does every day, all day, all year. You know, there are agricultural producers in your region that I'm sure were doing different things to prep for the hurricane. You know, if you're an almond or a pecan producer in South Georgia or a peanut producer, or you have orange groves in Florida, all those people were impacted by that storm. And the fact that, you know, what are you, you're a week out of the storm. Have you heard of anybody going hungry? Have you heard of the food system failing people? Like, that's a pretty incredible repeat. You know, you're you're fortunate you have the internet back in a week. Yeah. Man, a hundred years ago, you'd have been hopeful that you could find some freaking food. Oh yeah. And and the engagement of people back to where their food comes from, whether that state comes from me or other agricultural producers, because there's I mean, Florida is one of the largest cow calf producers in the country, uh, just because of the weather you guys have. Uh, so it's more so the message of connection to agriculture than connection to me. Yeah. Uh, I'm just fortunate enough to be enough of a BS artist that <laughs> I can come have a good time and drink an energy drink and talk on the, talk on the computer for a couple yeah, hours. Yeah, absolutely. So thanks again for having yeah, me. Yeah, no, man, I'm glad we could make it happen. And I think, you know, my listeners know at this point, uh, you know, depending on what part of the globe you're on, they might call me sarcastic, might call me cheeky, but you know, he reached out on, on Instagram. We were kind of connecting. And so I'm like, I'm just being myself and goofing. I'm like, well, you know, for, to really do this right, to have you on the podcast, I'm going to need to have a couple of ribeyes and, it, but you didn't miss a beat. You're like, yeah, some, some of your address meat headed your way. And, uh, sure enough, showed up there on the doorstep. And I had, you know, eating those steaks, I had, I would say a similar experience to your mom's in that, uh, I was, I was born in Illinois, but moved down here very, very young, uh, back in like, uh, 86. And I grew up in and around Osceola County down here in central Florida. And of course it's, it's changed a ton. Like most places have, and like a lot of Florida has, but for the longest time, I, I think here lately, this isn't true, but when I was in Osceola County, which is, I mean, Disney is Osceola adjacent. Parts of Disney property fall within Osceola County. So tourism, massive, right? At the time that I was growing up in Osceola County, cattle ranching was still the largest industry in the county. And so I went to school with some of, you know, some of the third and fourth generation big ranching families. And I remember us doing, uh, you know, like a, a settler's day or something in high school for the elementary kids across the way. They were, they were right across the road. And so we brought them over and, and one of the guys, uh, Randy Booth, uh, was his name. They, they owned a big ranch and, and Randy brought fresh steak and he was just cooking it out, you know, just threw it, you know, a grate over a fire and was just cooking steak all day. And the piece of steak, I, I mean, this was 1997, the piece of steak that Randy cut off of that that day with his pocket knife that he carried at school all the time and handed to me, stuck with me as the best bite of steak I had ever had before or since until this past week when I was eating one of your strip steaks out of my own skillet. And I'm like, yeah, now that's steak. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and there's there's different things we can do to, and, and I mean, we could spend 30 minutes talking about just how the flavor happens. Um, but we're not alone in our ability to produce that. And if I what I would say to all your listeners is if you haven't found that, go find yeah. it. You know, if you're, if you're happy with the steak at the grocery store, great. There's nothing wrong with it. It's safe. It's healthy. Uh, it's nutritious. Um, there's just different things different people can do across the value chain, like aging animals, like you would do in a deer hunt, you know, 
if you shoot a deer, you don't cut it up the next day. You usually let it hang for a week, right? There's enzymatic reactions that need to happen from a meat science standpoint that allow for tenderness and better flavor. Uh, and quite frankly, the commercial beef chain can't do that. Yeah. Uh, some of the big processing plants in the country are harvesting 6,000 cows a day. Uh, now, some people don't like that. Uh, I personally don't want to work there, but I understand the need for a capacity of that scale because we have to feed America. Yeah. And actually, we have to feed parts of the world because we as the U.S. are able to produce so much additional product that we are part of the global stability plan because we can provide food. Yeah. Uh, you go to certain parts of the world and you start taking away two or three meals in a week, you're going to have some civil unrest. That becomes this whole bigger issue. Yeah. Um, so without getting too political, I mean, people being able to eat is really the motivation and the bona fides of the entire ag system worldwide. But our ability in the U.S. to produce what we do is not to be slept on because we we as the U.S. and the U.S. government actually uses food as a way to keep certain regions from going to war. I'd, I'd take that over the pallets of, of cash and arms that we've, that yeah. we've sent to Ukraine. I would much rather send bundles of of wheat and some meat to them. But let's back up the timeline some and start with, you know, you talked about uh, being from growing up out on the West coast and being out that way. So, how, you know, how'd you end up as a, as a left coaster ending up uh, running a cattle ranch in uh, Colorado? Uh, because like any good man, I outkicked my coverage and married a girl. <laughs> so it's the, enti- it's uh, the entire I- basis for the title of our, of our show. So we understand that here. You know, I, I think I was a solid four and a half, but luckily, uh, you know, she liked red wine, so she made some mistakes, and here we are. Uh, <laughs> but uh, so I grew up in eastern Oregon, went to junior college out there. I uh, went to Colorado State University, one of the most prestigious agricultural schools in the country. Uh, from there, I went to work for Cargill, which is a very, very large food manufacturer. Yeah. I ran big grain elevators and processing facilities for them. Uh, in Nebraska and Minnesota, went back to Oregon, did a bunch of capital construction, ran a construction company for about six years. And at that point, I actually met my wife at the time she was living in Idaho. Uh, She was working as a beef quality assurance director for the University of Idaho education system. Uh, She herself is a fifth generation rancher on the ranch I'm sitting on right now. Uh, we started dating. Uh, I kept feeding her red wine until we got married. Um, and then in 2015, we moved back to the family ranch, uh, expecting that we were going to start a family and wanting to share this way of life with the sixth generation to live on the double slash in. And the double slash in, when you hear me refer to that, is the family brand. Um, that's that piece of iron that is iconic for the family, but also Really, if you think about the legacy piece, that is what it yeah. is. Uh, you know, a piece of steel, it is it is held in that regard. Uh, the family originally founded the ranch in 1913. Uh, they got the deed to the ranch in 1917. Uh, it was part of the enlarged homestead. Mm-hmm. Uh, the original homestead is about a quarter mile this direction from me. Uh, the trees still stand where the house was. The house was actually moved into town in the 1950s, and it still stands in Akron. Uh, so there's there's a little bit of history. Uh, 
And my wife actually, you know, grew up here and she went to school at Texas Tech. She has a degree in animal science from there. Then she has a master's degree in cattle nutrition from West Texas A&M University. Um, so she has a master's level education in cow nutrition, believe it or not. So, you know, with those skill sets and my skill set in construction and sales, and uh, we've both spoken a lot and done a lot of different business stuff. Uh, the conversation came about with her dad, who still runs the family ranch, that, you know, one day we may need to take it over. And we asked him, you know, politely, okay, can we just do what you do? Because we have a good understanding of his business model. And he said, no. He said, you have to find a new way. The market's changing. You can't be in a price-taking environment anymore. Uh, I don't know what you're going to yeah. do, by the way, but not this probably. Yeah. And he has some skill sets that we don't have. So it's not like he's doing something that is unethical or not sustainable. It's just the market is naturally moving. Yeah. And in agriculture, as anybody has seen during COVID or anything else, if you're a price taker, it's exceptionally dangerous from an economic standpoint. So what we have done with Colorado Craft Beef to keep it very simple is we've made our own market. Yeah. Well, so we started elaborate on that phrase price taker for me, like break down for the listeners kind of what that means or or what that business model is. Sure. Uh, And and we'll break it way down. So if you go to the farmers, the farmers market grocery stand and you want to get some sweet corn, they tell you what the price is. And because it's from the farm stand, you're likely to pay more. Whereas if you go to the grocery store, Walmart or you know, down in your area, Publix, got to gotta give the floor to love. God bless them. Uh, the sandwiches are great when you go fishing in the Keys. That's my my guilty pleasure is. is the Publix sandwich on the, on the boat in Key oh, West. Oh, Pub Sub's a fancy thing. Uh, that's right. So if you go through the direct-to-consumer value chain, you get to set your value. If you, if you go through the commercial chain into a grocery store, they set your value. And there's three or four layers of margin taken off on the way to the grocery store. So if you want to be in a, as an ag producer, a strict commodity sense, whether you're producing oranges or pecans or whatever, the market will pay you a certain value. That's just how it goes. If you're in the cattle industry, the pork industry, or whatever it may be across this great country, you're at the mercy of the market. And if, you have something happen like during COVID, uh, the price of cattle fell 30% during COVID because they slowed down the processing capacity because they couldn't get people to work. So if you're in a price taking model, like most of the commodity chain is, you are at the mercy of the market. Now there are ways you can work through that with hedging and options and other economic things. But at the end of the day, you don't have a lot of control over your own destiny. There's bigger forces. At yeah. Work. Is, um, where with, well, is, is something, ahead. I mean, obviously, you know, COVID kind of a, a once in a generation thing where it's like really since the, you know, the flu in 1918, we haven't seen anything like that, but that category of, of event that causes that kind of fluctuation within your industry, how often mm-hmm. do, do you see that? Is that something you guys regularly have to budget for plan for hedge against, um, or is the market typically relatively stable and every once in a while you have a bigger event like that? So COVID, of course, is a weird yeah. one, right? 
every it's a every hundred years thing. But if you look at the natural timeline of the ag production cycle, and if you look at the last 10 years for cattle, you know, we're in 2022, 2012 was one of the biggest droughts in the country from a cattle production standpoint that affects price points. 2014 was the high of the market because during droughts, the cattle market, the cattle numbers go down and that affects the price. So you have this natural swing of the economics. Uh, in 2019, if a uh, harvest facility in Kansas burned down, so that dynamited the market. I mean, you're ta probably talking six to eight, I would call material economic events every decade. So if you're at the wrong point of your production cycle, when one of those things has happens to happen, you're going to be in bad shape. Now, it's not to say that you can't work through it. People have been doing it for a long time. This is not new. Uh, but, you know, inflation, interest rates changing, all of those different externalities affect your ability to be bankable. They affect your ability to carry on business. They affect your ability to sell. They affect your buyer's ability to buy. So as long as you choose to be in that exceptionally commoditized space, you have to watch for those. Now, the flip side is most of the people that are in that space are running very high numbers. So they're going scale of economy. They're only making $100 a head, but they're running hundreds and hundreds of animals. Yeah. So you can begin to make some money. Uh, with Colorado Craft Beef, we don't have that scale. So we have to have the premium. So what we've done is we set our own market. We built our own market through social media, through other events, uh, where we now have a connection to our own customer. We hold that value. We hold that connection where nobody else does. Yeah. So we can then drive business value by doing that. So when I say price taking versus price making, price taking is just selling on the open market as a commodity producer, which a lot of people do. And quite frankly, they have to do because not everybody can go direct to consumer. Uh, but to be a price maker, it's not just a matter of saying, I have this to sell, therefore it's worth X. It's I have this to sell and I have to continually cultivate the relationship with my customers to ensure that they agree that the price point I would like and I need to, sur or to survive is reasonable. Yeah. Both of those have a very different level of input. So if I can pretend to know more than I do and just, uh, you know, repeat questions I've heard on Shark Tank, what's in, in the space you're in, what's, what's that look like for you as far as, uh, you know, repeat buyers, churn, uh, cost of acquisition for customers? Like where are you finding your most success in customers finding you? So word of mouth is huge. Uh, I mean, I spoke to a gentleman last week and he's like, Oh yeah, I heard about you from this guy. Who heard about you from this other guy? So I mean, we're third or fourth level word of mouth. Uh, you know, we're we're seeing triple digit growth every year, so that becomes its own operational constraint. Is how do you have enough cattle to make that work? Yeah. But you know, our churn rate on customers is pretty low because uh, one of the things we found is our customers reliably will buy two times after their initial purchase within the first six months. So the product at that point starts to speak for itself Yeah, <laughs> is when people come back that quickly. Uh, and that's one of the things that we've noticed with some of 
the people we know in the direct-to-consumer space in beef and in other areas. And if your product is not demanding of a rebuy, you're going to lose. Yeah. So cost of acquisition is interesting because cost of acquisition for us is getting them in once because the beef will do the rest. Um, And then there's a ton of different things you can do from a marketing perspective and, and, and realize at that point you're competing with Omaha steaks, you're competing with crowd cow, you're competing with butcher box, you're competing with all these other guys Mm -hmm. that are way bigger. They have (laughs) substantially different marketing budgets and uh, quite frankly, a bigger team because the team that is Colorado craft beef is myself, my wife, and one hired person. Uh, and then we do have a contract marketing guy who is a retired, or excuse me, I forgot the proper nomenclature. He's not a retired Marine. Retired Marine? He was a machine gunner in the Marine Corps. You're not so a lot. You can't say, I guess you, you might be able to say retired Marine. I know you can't say former Marine. Correct. Which I think you're okay to say retired. Yeah. So uh, he, he was, uh, is a Marine that was a machine gunner in Iraq. And it's great because when he calls you with a marketing question, he calls you like he's picking up a radio and he's like, hey, I don't like this stuff. I want to fix it like this. And I'm like, send it. And he goes, great. And he hangs yeah, up. That's awesome. <laughs> so he's never once asked me about my feelings. And for that, I love the guy. <laughs> That's one of my favorite Ron Swanson quotes as he talk about, talks about an old friend that he used to work with. And he said, we still never talk sometimes. <laughs> That's right. So, well, I'm, I, yours is an industry I've always been intrigued by. Um, I, I didn't grow up in a, you know, a, a farming or an ag family, but kind of tangential. So, so some of my background here and why I've, I've got kind of a soft spot for, for what you do. One is I'm, I just have logic and a thinker and anybody who doesn't appreciate your industry, um, you know, that's a whole other conversation, but, uh, you know, most of my family's from the Midwest from, from Illinois, uh, at least, you know, just a couple generations back, my, uh, several members of my dad's family were retired from John Deere, uh, including maybe my all time favorite member of my family. We'll say extended member of my family. I don't think any of them listen to the podcast and a bunch of them have passed away. So it doesn't matter, but she worked for John Deere for 38 years, um, retired. To- so actually to, to tie that together, yeah. our marketing guy, is from the Quad Cities. Nice. And and his dad retired from John Deere in the nineties. That's awesome. Yeah. She, so there's there's a cross there somewhere for sure. Yeah. She um she retired in like eighty two after thirty eight years. She started there at eighteen years old. Never worked anywhere else. Took every stock option they ever offered her. Never sold it. Never traded it. It was John Deere stock, and she was going to keep it. And boy, had it appreciated when she passed away. <laughs> um, right. But my my dad's dad, he died when I was very young, but um, he started there um, as a machinist, as a welder. And with no degree, when he retired, he was the lead plow blade, uh, plow blade engineer. Just mm-hmm just trial and error and picking it up as he went. So, um, so always had an appreciation for the machinery, of course, being out in the Midwest when I was younger and then going up to visit all the time, you know, it's corn on one side and corn on the other though. You go up there now and a lot of the cornfields are soy. Um, I've got family, uh, you retired from cat. And then my, my mom's brother, 
my uncle Bernard always had a, for most of my life has had a small farm up in Illinois, kind of on the Peoria side of the state. So, you know, never done a ton with it. He always had some, some goats, had some sheep, had some turkeys that the bigger cousins would hold me under, uh, in the rafters. And, uh, but just, I was, the farm was always a cool place to me. I always loved the smell. I loved the animals and I've just, I've just kind of always had this built in, uh, appreciation for it. And of course, you know, despite feeding the country and the world, man, you guys get beat up a lot. Um, and so one, I think just the mis, uh, misunderstanding really of what, what farmers are, what ag is, what ranchers are like talking to you, just hearing you talk about your own background and your wife's. And I just find this over and over again, when you, when you hear anybody speak from this industry, um, just a, a massive level of education going into modern agriculture. And, you know, the quote unquote small family farm is still, you know, you're looking at people with degrees in business and in ag and all just to make this happen because you're doing it all right. It's, you've got to wear all the hats of, of the business in one side. Uh, but you know, I, I just want to, let's jump in just to some of the different, con you know, I have no roadmap here. I don't know that it'll all go in a, in a straight line, but just start digging into some of the controversies or maybe dispelling some of the myths. And I, I think we have to start with, um, you know, as a cattle rancher, how do you sleep at night knowing that you're destroying the earth? <laughs> well, the good news is we're not. Oh gosh, uh, that's so, such a relief. So depending, yeah. So depending on who you listen to, uh, the best part is when a lot of people talk about, oh, cow farts are destroying the ozone. Well, let's spin that 180 degrees because it's really not cow farts. It's actually burps. So it's methane from when they regurgitate and chew their cud. So anybody that says cow farts automatically doesn't know which what they're talking about because they're on the wrong end of the animal. So we can just knock those guys right off the line. Awesome. Good to know. Because, yeah. Uh, and then the flip side is, most of the agricultural land in the United States, 70% of it is unfit for cultivation. So for instance, where we live right here, where I'm sitting in Eastern Colorado, we're in the sand hills. It's literally the, the deepest blow sand like you guys have on the coast in mm -hmm. Florida. You can't farm it. So you have to keep a root zone in there. It has to be stable so that it doesn't blow. Like imagine the dust bowls from the 1930s during the Great Depression. Mm -hmm. Those came because people were trying to cultivate land that was unfit for cultivation. So of all the land in the U.S. that is fit for culture, or excuse me, that is used in agriculture, as I said, 70% is unfit for cultivation, meaning you can't farm it. You can't run tractors over it. You can't grow anything on it. So as agricultural land, what it becomes is grazing land. And a lot of that is, you know, southern Idaho out in the lava rocks, or it's where I'm from in eastern Oregon. It's forest service land. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's a joke. I, I don't know if you call it a joke. There's a common saying where I'm from in eastern Oregon, which is on fire every summer based on the climate. You can log forest ground, you can graze forest ground, or you can watch it burn. Because to some degree, you have to mitigate that fuel. You know, if you're looking at a place in eastern Oregon or western Colorado that gets 14 inches of rain a year, it's going to get dry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, you guys got 14 inches of rain last <laughs> yeah, I was gonna week. Say, I was going to say, I got 18 inches on Wednesday. <laughs> exactly. So we don't get that. Like right here where I'm sitting at the ranch, our, our annual average is 11 inches. So you can't grow anything. 
So you get this very fortunate time frame of the year where we're going to get most of the rain between April and July, some of it in the spring, some of it in the form of snow in the winter, but we get a growing season that grows native grasses. That ground is good for nothing else. So you turn out ruminant, ruminant animals on it, ruminants being you know, those with multiple stomachs, cows, mm -hmm. goats, whatever you want to do. Uh, I don't really want to have goats, nor do I want to have sheep. So we've settled on cattle. <laughs> and, you know, those cows do something that, you know, the guys at Jocko Go would be proud of. They convert non-edible product into steak. That's a pretty cool machine yeah. that can take grass and sagebrush and turn it into steak. And that is the case, as I've said three times now, in 70% of agricultural land. So it's not that we choose to raise cattle. It's that we choose to optimize nature in the way that it is designed to operate. Yeah. Are these, uh, you know, wave a, wave a magic wand and uh, get rid of the humans and get, get rid of the, the cattle? Um, mm -hmm. You know, what, what would have grazed these same lands? Like what would have kept that ecosystem in balance or in check? I mean, that would have been back in the days of the Cherokee and things back then when they had hundreds of thousands and millions of buffalo. And you had, you know, actually, if you look at some of the old Lewis and Clark uh, journals, they they noticed originally that elk were plains animals. And but they're exceptionally reclusive. So as people moved into the plains, they moved to more secluded areas. So it would have been all the wildlife that we think of when we think of the Great Plains. Bison being the biggest one, and I forgot the numbers. I think bison at the peak of their numbers were estimated to have somewhere around 50 million uh, animals. Yeah. And so, the, and oddly enough, the other natural uh, nature operation that happened in those times before people were plentiful was fire. That's how you got rid of overgrowth. That's how you got rid of weeds. That's how you got rid of different things. Was there were natural fires started by lightning that burned hundreds of thousands of acres. So there's, and there's actually some of the Native American books you can read that differing areas of the country, uh, the Native Americans would burn certain sections of the plains to consolidate hunting areas so that it wasn't so vast. Yeah. I'm just, you know, you're talking about, uh, you know, elk out on the plains and I'm just imagining Cam Haynes losing his mind. I think he would have single-handedly driven the elk into higher elevations, but uh, how, so how does, um, the cattle population in the U S now compare to like what would have been the bison population? I gotta imagine it dwarfs it. Uh, no, no. The cattle population is actually low. Really? Yeah. Uh, I've got my trusty little Google machine here. See, that that can't up. be true though, because the, the climate change wasn't happening with the, the 50 million head of bison. So if there's less cattle, see, there's a math problem here that maybe I'm just too dumb for. Estimated 30 to 60 million bison roamed North America in the 1500s. That's an interesting number. U.S. cattle production population right now, okay, 93 million. So I was incorrect on those numbers. Same thing. So go. 50 to yeah, 30 to 60 million at the peak of the bison population, and right now we're at 93 million on uh, in 2020, which is down a million head from the year before. 
Are we the top cattle producer in the world? Yeah. Man, that makes especially by pound. That makes me proud. <laughs> so the interesting thing to think about though is that 93.8 million is going to include the dairy herd because the dairy herd is its own separate number, right? Um, and we harvest around 35 million cattle a year in the U.S. Uh, just for beef consumption. Uh, and those are going to raise from, you know, coal cows that are just being ground into burger all the way to like your best high-end prime beef. So it's really interesting to understand the math and how that moves. But if we look at the U.S. population or cattle population over time, uh, sector at a glance, this is from the USDA. So just making sure that we have uh, our numbers in check. In 1975, there was 130 million cows, and now we're down to 93. So as a industry, and this is one of the, one of the things, uh, shout out to Andy Stumpf. I had a ton of data when I went on his podcast, which was almost a year ago today exactly. Uh, episode 205 on Cleared Hot for anybody that wants to hear that. We we went crazy with the numbers and the statistics and all these other things. Yeah, after after but this general, episode, if you want to, listeners, if you want to hear a good podcast, I highly recommend that episode <laughs> of Andy's. That is not what I was saying. This is going to be a <laughs> good it's, podcast, it's, too. It's true either way. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I love uh, Andy's, and that and that episode was was fantastic. I was just listening to it in in preparation for this. So, well, the the interesting part when you start looking at all these numbers is you have to think of the net cost per unit. And people don't like it in general when you start talking about animals as a unitized number. But if we want to start measuring things like climate change or cost of beef or how we're destroying the environment, we need to look at it from an objectional data point of yeah. view, or objective data point of view. So our water usage in the cattle industry is down like 60% in the last 40 years. It's, it's, there's a ton of data points out there that talk about all this yeah. stuff, and my apologies, I don't have a ton of them in front of me. But in general, if you look at the ag, and this is probably the other bad rap ag gets, everybody talks about factory farming and Oh, it's really not families doing the work, uh, as produced or as shown by the U.S. Meat Export Federation. Eighty-eight percent of all food in the United States is produced by a family farm. So, where's the uh, what's the what's the disconnect there? Like how, how you know? Well, just uh, break break that down for me. How how that works? Because you do hear a, a lot about. Um, the family farm's going away, and uh, depending on what you read, Bill Gates has purchased all of all your land. Um, you know, so what's the reality behind kind of the the media hype on those things? Well, there's a few different things at play. Um, so before I answer that, let's I'm going to give another little snippet of my resume just so people can align what I'm talking about. I also work in private equity. I'm a math nerd from a way back. I have a spreadsheet for almost everything, and I, I do a lot of investing in the agricultural space. So as opposed to a lot of my brothers and sisters in agriculture, I have a little different lens that I view all this yeah. from, uh, which I think makes it a little more palatable to the general consumer. So let's talk Bill Gates first. Bill Gates owns, I think it's like a quarter million acres, something like that. That's a fair amount of ground. And the easy way to talk about why he owns it, I think is 
uh, summed up by a Fox News article from a few years back. From 1976 to 2016, that 40-year period, agriculture, or excuse me, downtown Manhattan real estate, if you bought something on, on Fifth Avenue in downtown, it went up 10x in 40 years. That's pretty incredible. Yeah. High-end agricultural production ground in that same 40-year period went up by 16x. So when somebody says, oh, he's buying all the farm ground, well, yeah, it's a known asset class with exceptional returns that beats downtown Manhattan real estate. And if we really break it down, no matter what you do in society, 50 years from now, people are still going to need to eat. And if we look at what's happened in the economy in the last two years, commercial real estate kind of got beat up during the pandemic because how many of us now work from home? Yeah. You don't need as much commercial real estate. You don't need office parks. Uh, I know, for instance, not far from us, about an hour away, State Farm Insurance built this huge commercial building that they opened in 2018. It housed like 600 people. It was like nine stories. They shut it down during the pandemic and put it up for sale because like, oh, we don't need this anymore. Well, nobody's going to do that with a farm. And I don't know this for a fact, but... My assumption would be that if you looked at any number of the acres that Bill Gates has purchased, they're still producing product. There's still taxes associated with that land. There's still upkeep associated with that land. And for all the craziness that that guy's got himself embroiled in, he's not going to invest millions and millions and millions of dollars in something and just let it languish. My yeah. My two well, I, I like it as a real estate investment over the idea that he just wants to feed us all fake meat eventually. So I, I'm happy to go with that take. Though <laughs> so he might also well, want to just I'm feed not, us all fake meat at some point, too. Yeah, I'm not saying there's not another agenda. I'm just saying that from the math, it's pretty hard to argue why an investor of that caliber would be doing what he's doing. Uh, now, I'm not Bill Gates. I don't have access to his inner circle. So I could be totally wrong, yeah. but it's just interesting because really a quarter million acres in the United States from an ag production standpoint is not that big of a deal. Yeah. So, so backtracking some there to something you said, though, then that the majority of, um, you know, our, our meats coming from family farms and not these these quote unquote factory farms. Uh, where what's the reality behind that? Where's the disconnect? You know, like for for me, I, you see the the juxtaposition, and I can't remember what really kind of turned me on to being a little bit more concerned about where my meat was coming from and how that meat was produced and raised. But, you know, I've been a big fan of Mark Sisson for a long time, uh, still am. Big fan of Rob Wolf for a long time, still am. Obviously, Rob's been involved like with the Sacred Cow Project and, and that type of stuff. You know, so for me, the the juxtaposition at both ends is you know going to you know, Walmart and buying the the cheapest pack of what ground, whatever from wherever versus like typically before your box showed up on my doorstep, I'm going to go, I was going to go to Publix and pick up a pound of uh, white Oak pasture, uh, you know, ground beef, which is fantastic. I mean, it's, it's good stuff. It's probably two and a half times the price of going and buying a, a pound of ground, whatever from Walmart. And, you know, on my end, thoroughly convinced that there's a vast difference between those two products and how they were produced and how they ended up on my plate. So it depends on the vertical you're in. So, and by vertical, I mean, are you talking chicken? Are you talking pork? Are you talking beef or are you talking tomatoes? Yeah. Right. So in general, 
the factory farming moniker comes from people, not people. It comes from a place where people are very concerned with how their food is made. And I really respect that. Now, the flip side of that is what people are not taking into account is what's required. So if we just take the cattle space, for instance, the term factory farming in the cattle industry almost doesn't even apply. Yes, there are big feed yards, feed lots, as you've probably seen, but the biggest ones in the country are 100,000 cows. Now, there's multiple millions chicken farms, like there's, there's some chicken farms that have 10 or 20 million birds on site. So there's different kind of things to look at in each vertical. But in general, if you take the cattle industry, we have four segments in the cattle industry. We have the cow-calf operators, which are people that own mother cows, that their commodity they sell is young calves when they get weaned. Well, the average herd size in the U.S. is like 30 cows. Really? Yeah, it's very, very, very small. Because in the cattle space especially, you can't own... And you can. There are some ranches that have tens of thousands of mother cows, but they're very uncommon. Um, The next level of the value chain in the cattle space is the stalker or yearling operators. That's where my wife's or my wife's family has operated, and they take weaned calves. We turn them out on grass. We get them to the next level in their life cycle, and then they are sold to the third sector, which is the feed yard. That's where their grain finished. That's where they're prepared to be, you know, in a right body condition that they go to a harvest plant and they produce the best quality of protein they can. Um, So you can talk grass finished versus grain finished, all those other things as we kind of move them around. But in general, that's the cow space. And in the cattle market, you can't get huge factories. It just doesn't work. So probably the closest thing to a factory is going to be the harvest facilities where they convert those cattle into steak and to do that on a small scale is exceptionally expensive. So some of the harvest facilities in the country that do this harvest six, eight, 10,000 animals a day. Well, and they've got hundreds of people and their cost of production is approximately a third of the rest of the industry. And that is why you can get that beef cheaper. I mean, there's different things you can do. So if you take somebody like White Oak Pastures or somebody like our company, Colorado Craft Beef, where we harvest is under the same inspection criteria as those big facilities, but you're talking 10, 20, 50 animals a day, not thousands. Yeah. So by sheer scale of economy, your prices are much, much, much higher. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're able to do different things like at Colorado Craft Beef, everything we ate or everything we harvest, the heart or the carcasses are aged for 21 days. You can't do that at a facility that harvests 6,000. Yeah. It's just impossible. It's a real estate, it's a real estate problem that becomes pretty much insolvable. Now, the difference is if you look at the chicken and the pork industry, we'll just talk protein. What's happened there is this crazy level of vertical integration. So I have a buddy of mine that's in Iowa. They have a 40,000 head pig facility, but he's also a farmer, so he can provide his own feed. So he's upcycling his own ability to make different margins along the way. He's diversifying his operation. He's able to get more vertical. 
He's able to sell product or keep it and feed it if the economics support it. Um, but you know, people go, oh, that's factory farming. Look how big it is. I'm like, no, that's, that's called being efficient. Yeah. And sometimes you just have to be efficient because not everybody can raise 10 pigs because not everybody wants to raise 10 right. pigs. Um, so probably the chicken and the pork industry catch the worst heat for factory farming just because of how big they have to be to make the math work. Yeah. Um, but even in those verticals, those are it's a lot of family facilities that are contracted to feed up the pyramid yeah. to the harvest facilities that are owned by the meat processors like Seaboard Pork or whoever else it may be. And I think what people are afraid of is that in a factory or a large facility, that's probably a better way to call it, in a large facility that animal health is, it suffers. Well, what we have actually noticed is it's quite the opposite. If you're at a large facility that has 100,000 cows on feed and you have a certain amount of money per animal for cleaning and maintenance and all these things, you have a lot of money. You have a big budget. For yeah. That. If you're a thousand head feed yard, a mile from that big one, you're pinching pennies to make sure you can pay the light bill. So this scale of economy thing is something to be talked about, but also some of these very large facilities are under such a regulatory microscope that if they don't execute, they're going to be just dragged through the mud. For yeah. It. So it's, it's interesting. People have this negative connotation to larger agriculture and that's really not the case. The larger agriculture is usually the most optimized. It's the most well-managed because they have the money to pay for the staff and the resources. Yeah. Um, and to think about the family farm side of things, there's a lot of people that think family farms are going away. Going away is probably the wrong statement. Family farms are consolidating to capture those scale of economy differences. Because not, like I said, not everybody can raise 10 pigs and be efficient at it. It takes the same, it'll take you the same amount of time to feed 50 cows as it will 500. And so what happens is these family farms are getting to be thousands and thousands of acres and they're running a lot of animals and they're doing a lot of business because that's how to stay profitable. Right. And for everybody that's screaming at the, at the phone or whatever you're listening to right now, I really need you to understand what's happened to agricultural profitability. In the 70s, for every dollar that was invested into agriculture, a producer could expect to get a dollar 35 back. Today, if you invest a dollar, you get about a dollar 14 back. So the profitability has been cut by over yeah. half in 40 years. And we have the most least expensive food system in the country, or excuse me, in the world. I mean, we spend eight to 9% of our income on food in the United States and in other parts of the world, like South Korea, it's upwards of 50%. So before we start screaming at the agricultural producers and we don't like to talk about animal units and how we have to be efficient, yeah. if we could just turn, if we could double our profit overnight and put it back to where it was in the 1970s, a lot of this conversation would go away. What? 
but the general yeah. public has become so accustomed to this low cost of food and the processors are the ones actually driving the producers prices down there's only so so many places for the money to come from uh, how much of that goes into and uh, this is you know where i start to show my my libertarian leanings um you know man the the government meddles in your industry more than most not more than all but but more than most both on the you know um, the crop side and the animal side and, you know, certain things that are subsidized and aren't subsidized. And you hear, um, you know, reports about, you know, people like being paid, you know, not to plant on a, a particular thing or not plant a particular area. How much of that goes into what that struggle is with pricing and profitability for your industry? Sure. Uh, so in the cattle side, there's almost no help. There's almost no intervention on the live cattle side. So first thing to first thing to just send out the gate. Now the subsidies on different commodities like corn and hay and different feedstuffs that we utilize, that is a big part of it. But that's more on the farming yeah. side. And you know, at Colorado Craft Beef and the family ranch, we have zero farming. Uh, we just have to source everything yeah. because like I mentioned earlier, where we live, we can't really grow anything. So there is some concern with how much they get invested, but a big part of that is trying to not overproduce, trying to not underproduce. And in certain industries, the U.S. government's the biggest buyer of those commodities, like the cotton industry, for instance. Um, now, based on how much international security we provide with food, with other things like cotton for textile plants in different parts of the world, et cetera, et cetera, I'm not supporting the government's involvement. I do believe to some degree it needs to be rolled back, but much to the conversation about the economics and the impression people have, we need to be very careful because the third, fourth, and fifth level effects start to get really, really ugly. Um, now the question is, because the libertarian thing is something I uh, espouse to as well, can we really assume that we're going to get the full story where we can, you know, legitimately roll that back? Likely not. And that's the bigger problem, right? Is, yeah. Hey, we, we can fix the problem. That's no, no issue. But if you can't truly identify it, can you fix it? Yeah. So Kale, can you give me like 20 minutes? Yeah, absolutely. All right. Perfect. Yeah. So, you know, a behind the scenes for the listeners here, which I think is a cool glimpse of, uh, you know, kind of what you do is, uh, Ranch life waits for uh, for nothing else, really. So it's like uh, the animals got to eat, they got to drink, and uh, sometimes they've got to be packed into a freezer in the middle of a podcast. And so there we go. Yeah. Well, I mean, the good news is the truck is here. It didn't have any issues. And we're starting to build up our inventory going into the holidays. Uh, and I leave tomorrow for an event in Tennessee with Carrie uh, Trainer, one of the premier concealed carry trainers in the country. Nice. So this was the day it had to happen and they were two hours early and, uh, apologize for the interruption. Um, no worries. Yeah. So we were, we were talking kind of the, the impact, um, really on, you know, I had asked it from the, the angle of like, uh, subsidies, you know, not really as much price controls, you know, these days I always hear, um, uh, you know, on the, on the egg side, the, you know, the, 
how, you know, like ethanol subsidies affect our corn prices and, you know, and different stuff like that. Wasn't how sure how much of that played in on, on your side of the house or played a factor on your side of the house. Um, I mean, it, it certainly comes into play because it's all part of the value chain that is our food system. So, you know, some of the byproducts of ethanol are fed as cattle feed in certain instances. Uh, dry distillers grains is the technical term for it. Uh, or you can have wet distillers grains because they're distilling ethanol. It's the same as just basically a big whiskey yeah. still. Um, so it's interesting, but, you know, a lot of those subsidies have been put together to encourage like ethanol production, for instance. You know, had they not had certain tax benefits to pursue some of those technologies that were a loss in the very beginning, they wouldn't have become technology. Solar and wind energy are a huge part of that. I mean, some of the people that do solar and wind energy, the only thing they make is tax credit money. Um, you know, I think there was there was somebody that said something about Tesla. That was one of their biggest uh, savings was the tax credits for producing electric vehicles. So I, I get the the animosity towards some of those systems. And to be frank, I don't agree with all of those systems. But, uh, you know, much to my conversation about ag profitability being cut by 60%, if the incentive is not there, it's not going to yeah. happen. Whatever that incentive may be, however it needs to be structured, uh, a lot of technologies come about because the government invests in them and systems are built around those technologies and they can peel back the subsidies. Um, so by and large, I do not agree with government intervention, but I would say that there's a lot of things nationwide that government involvement has yeah. helped. So without really peeling the onion on all of them, I mean, I think we just need to be very strategic in how we observe those yeah. Well, uh, how, uh, you know, what's your take on the other side of, of that coin where I, I spent a significant amount of time on uh, my last episode uh, with my buddy Jason Shorey ranting about the impacts that uh, local government and local government elections have on uh, all of our, our daily lives. And so, you know, you're probably in one of the, the most regulated industries in the country too. And how much of that do you see as beneficial and necessary and how much of that um, is maybe overly burdensome and, and maybe a struggle for running us, you know, a challenge to running a smaller operation? Well, it depends on where you're at. So the issues I have in Colorado are going to be different than the issues people have in Utah or different than people have in Florida. So a lot of it's going to come down to natural resources and how those natural resources are affected by legislation and how that then trickles down to agriculture. Because one of the most direct things that we've seen in the agricultural space in Colorado in the last few years is there was a big push on a bill last fall uh, about a year ago that, well, a year and a half ago at this point, because it didn't make it to the ballot. They were trying to outlaw certain animal production practices. They were doing a bunch of very direct action against animal agriculture and agriculture in general. And the ag industry is very good at coalescing around a threat like that and dealing with it. Where we actually face a bigger issue, and I think a lot of the people in the country in the ag space see this as well, 
is if somebody starts regulating something that is two or three layers removed from what you do, you may not hear about it in time. Yeah. So you have to be exceptionally diligent when it comes to that. So you have to have a pulse on what's going on, what's driving what in your area, and who your representatives are, and do they have your best interest in mind. Uh, and then you have to be a member of some of the more professional organizations like the Cattlemen's Groups or you know local livestock associations so that you can hear some yeah. of this. Uh, and luckily, we live in a day and age that we have a lot of access to data like that, whether it's internet, just newsletters or Facebook, we're a lot more connected than we've ever been because 30 or 40 or 50 years ago, some of that stuff got done and people didn't even know what was happening. So that's the biggest issue is all of those little things that can add up if you're not watching them. Because in general, the very egregious overreaches are rallied against and defeated when necessary. Uh, but probably the biggest issue we struggle with as an agricultural industry, and I don't mean cattle, I mean all of ag, is we're all disintegrated. You know, the cattle guys want something different than the pork guys who want something different than the chicken guys. And we all think the corn guys get too much subsidies and they think the cotton guys are jerks. And as a group, depending on who you look at, agriculture is one to two percent of the total population. Um and that depends on if you include agricultural bankers and ag attorneys and all the white collar stuff associated with the level of business we have to conduct. So if you really break it down, we're an exceptionally small part of the population and we can't get along amongst ourselves. Yeah. And that probably produces more issues than anything I've seen. Yeah. I mean, Mike Rowe always puts that so impactfully, you know, that it's, it's 2% of the country feeding the rest of us and then some. Uh, it's it's really a, a staggering stat, but can can we all in this maybe the Midwestern enemy talking? We can't all get together and agree that we don't like the soy guys, though, right? Can we all hate on soy? The problem you run into is a lot of the soy guys are corn guys yeah. too, and they also have cattle on the side, and everybody's kind of mixed up in the middle. Um, and quite frankly, I've 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 been around the soybean market to some degree when I worked for Cargill, yeah. of course, but. I would be curious where the rest of those acres would go because the amount of calories that are produced by the soy industry is pretty incredible. Yeah. Uh, I think some of the practices could be updated. I think, you know, soybean oil is a health thing is uh, really not up my alley. Yeah. I'm more of a carnivore guy and I'm, I'm down 90 pounds on carnivore. Wow. So Yeah. Yeah, I actually I've had people tell me they're like, uh, I was back home in Oregon just a couple of weeks ago and they didn't recognize me. Uh, so jujitsu and steak is my solution. So there's not a lot of soy in that in that equation. Yeah. Um, so it's really interesting where soy has become such a huge part of our society. Yeah. I'd be curious to to look at the model of how we unwind it. Uh, and that's actually, you know, you mentioned Rob Wolf and the sacred cow project for anybody that really wants to talk about agriculture and doesn't really know. Uh, let me preface this by saying most people not in agriculture, when they write a book immediately, those of us in agriculture are on edge wondering how bad they're going to tear us. Mm -hmm. And I know Rob, 
Um, I've not rolled with him. I've rolled in the same gym as him a couple of times because he actually rolls in the same gym that Andy Stump yeah. does. And so I've met Rob. Uh, we do some business with Element. We actually got in a big shipment. We're going to be doing some Element giveaways during the holidays through Colorado Craft Beef. Uh, so that'll be yeah. fun. But listening to Rob and Diana Rogers, the co-author, talk through that that research they did for Sacred Cow is the best written, unbiased, scientifically attacked or scientifically attached version of ag I've seen in a very long time. Yeah. So for any of your listeners that are like, hey, I want to understand more about this, Rob and Diana did a great job of going through the ag industry, discussing what is right, what is wrong. And Rob's a biochemist by yeah. trade. I mean, the guy is crazy smart. And his ability to look at the data and come out of it was incredible. And, and there were times when they were talking about stuff, I was yelling at the stereo in my pickup. But they came around in a way that wasn't totally supportive of what we do. It wasn't totally negative, but it was very objective based on the data and what they found. So it's that from a talking point standpoint with somebody that dislikes cattle or myself would be a great middle ground that we could all go yeah. talk about. And I think that's the key is those middle ground work. Where can we get to that we can sit down and have a cup of coffee or a Jocko go or a beer and, and have a good conversation and leave our pitchforks. Yeah. Home? No. Yeah. And that's, that's part of why I've always been such a, a big fan of Rob is he's just always been such a, a logical data driven intellectual. And when the data, you know, points him in another direction, he's, he's down to, to go that way. Um, and so, yeah. And it's, uh, it's funny cause I immediately thought of him when you started talking about, you know, carnivore and rolling. Cause part of how element came about is his challenges in wanting to be, you know, lower carb or keto, but it, you know, hand, you know, hamstringing him in his jujitsu because it's so glycolytic and he's like man i'm gassing out when i don't have more carbs and really the sodium and the electrolytes were the solution to that and he kind of figured that out um with the oh who's the guys he did element with um keto's in the name I don't know. but uh anyway so some some coaches he was working with i can think luigi can't believe i can't think of their name but um and kind of making up those electrolytes made the difference so that's uh kind of cool you've got some the connections there, but you know, kind of where I, well, the interesting, yeah. the interesting part, uh, you know, not to plug another podcast on your podcast again, but Joe, Joe Rogan had Diana and Rob on to talk about sacred cow. And the interesting part, and this is really what agricultural agriculture struggles with Rob and Diana talked about the fact that the fact that they came out and said grain finished is actually more, productive and less impactful than grass finished steak. They, I mean, people wouldn't publish the documentary because of that stuff, yeah. because they were, they were lambasted because there's an expected narrative and Rob and Diana, I, I don't want to ad lib too much, but their basic statement was, man, people didn't want to hear that. We had this to say, we weren't published by certain people because they thought we were just wrong. And to a degree, we had to wonder, man, should we, should we just not put that in the book because it is so controversial? Yeah. 
And to their credit, they left it in. They they stood on their work as they put the the effort forth, and they owned yeah. it. And I actually told Rob on the phone one day, I, I just called him and said, hey, man, I really appreciate what you did. And I told him what I just told you. Like most of us in ag, when somebody writes a book about ag and they're not in it, man, we're already a little defensive. But their ability to just drill the data down, talk about it from a business and a philosophical standpoint and make it data driven and unbiased yeah. is outstanding. Well, and I think that's part of, um, you know, trying to tie, you know, some of these ideas and concepts we've talked about together, right? Like I had a uh, family on my, on my wife's side that had a, a chicken farm for quite a while and they were contracted and all their chickens were going to, you know, somebody else kind of in, in that pipeline and not knocking what, you know, it was, it was an honest living and they were, they were hard workers and it was a family farm. Like part of why they ended up selling their farm is once their sons got older and went to college and went into the military, it was like hiring people to replace their very hardworking sons just made it not economically feasible. And this was with a, what I would have said is a large amount of chickens, but then you go and it's, you know, they're in the coops that are kept dark and the feeds and their stuff. I'm like, I don't feel like this is probably going to be a healthy chicken. Like if I was a chicken, I don't think I'd want to be in here, uh, you know? And so I, I'd love to have you comment kind of on how much of, of stuff like that, when you see those images or, you know, when you see these undercover behind the scenes videos, um, a lot of those are, do tend to be the, the pork industry. I feel like pork and dairy get hit a lot with that stuff. I feel like, so, you know, impacts like that, you know, I'd love to hear your take on, is that just kind of us anthropomorphizing it? Or do we, does it lack context or that's just a stage in it? And, but then also, you know, I'd love to hear you. I'll, I'll stop at this. So we don't, we don't lose the the point here, but um, you know, are, are there values and differences between um, like grass fed and finished green finished? How much of that's reality? How much of that is that same kind of perception where it looks better and sounds better, but maybe really, really isn't in any quantitative way. Sure. So let's, let's talk non cattle, then we'll talk yeah. cattle. So if you look at some of the nasty videos that have come out, whether it's the fair life video or something about the chicken, chicken industry, uh, trying to think of the correct way to say this, I, I, while I don't condone things like that, when you're dealing on things at scale, sometimes it's inevitable. Sometimes something just looks yeah. bad. Uh, you know, a cow gets a infected foot and they're limping because you didn't see it in time or, you know, where we live, there's cactus, you know, they can get foot, it's called foot rot. Their foot's not rotting, but it's an infection between the two hooks. So there's stuff that out of context can look really bad. Uh, I don't eat a lot of chicken. Chicken wings are pretty legit. Don't get me wrong. But uh, I'm not a fan of some of those practices. Um you know, wild turkey, heck yeah. yeah, shoot some pheasants. I grew up hunting pheasants in Oregon. I love that too. But what I would say is the market is demanding that protein. There's a certain way they have to produce it to be sustainable economically. And that's the fun thing about sustainability is everybody wants to talk about cupcakes and unicorns and all these other things, but they forget that if it doesn't make money, you can't do it. Yeah. Uh, because there's nobody just making a donation to a business to run because someone loves the idea. Uh, so to make things economically sustainable in a low margin area, uh, 
And by the way, animal welfare notwithstanding, because animal welfare is a not negotiable. You have to have the best welfare because as an agricultural producer of live animals, they depend on you. And if you are not putting that first and foremost, shame yeah. on you. So that is, I mean, that's core tenant number one. So I've been run over by cattle. I've broken bones off horses. When, when we're moving cattle, I've had gates hit me in the face. Like I've taken way more abuse than I've ever even considered giving out. And we don't abuse anything. Like sometimes you just get wrecked and you have to take that in stride. That's just part yeah. of it. Um, so animal welfare, notwithstanding, because that's a not negotiable. There are certain things you have to do at scale to make money and to continue to feed the world. And the amount of, I mean, it's 2 billion chickens with a B that is harvested in this country annually. That is a lot of yeah. work. And, it, and you have to do it at scale because birds don't make a lot of money. I mean, especially when you've detonated the ability of the entire sector to make money by 60%. It's not going to get any right. better. So I don't like some of that stuff. I think there are things we could try to do better. But if the consuming public won't pay higher prices or better conditions, what do yeah. you do? Well, and that, you know, and I understand that I'm I'm lucky, blessed, whatever somebody's take wants to be, to be in a position where like, uh, I think it's actually the brand name uh, and not just, I, I we, we buy... I think the brand name is Pasture Raised Eggs. We get them. We get them at Publix. I've seen them a few other places down here. Black Carton, but you get a little card in there that tells you which of their farms they came from, and you get a breakdown of how much open land. So it's not just access to the outdoors. It's chickens doing chicken things, eating worms and mice and whatever. You know, <laughs> going back to Joe Rogan, he talks about how vicious chickens really are, which is always a funny year. Oh man! But I, I'm telling you, like, I don't need to be a scientist, a, a biologist, a nutritionist. You you crack open an egg like that and grab the white or pink carton of whatever from your grocer. You can look at the yolks. And see a difference. And again, perception isn't always reality, but I think there's a natural tendency in us to be able to identify stuff like that. Like this, this looks like a healthier product, right? This thing doing its thing. But I also recognize that a I'm I'm in a position where I I can pay. I don't even know how much more it is than just that. I'm going to grab the white shell styrofoam carton, but I know I'm paying more, I think maybe it's five bucks a dozen or something for those, which is higher. And that's not feasible for everybody. And that when you're talking 2 billion chickens, the, this chicken had this many acres to roam just does not scale. It's just not an option right. for everybody. Well, and here's the other part of that is, uh, so in my private equity things and all the weird stuff I've looked at in the agricultural space, one of the investment opportunities I spent a lot of time on was a big egg facility. Uh, this is for another company. It's not something I was going to invest in, but I was contracted to help with the financial analysis. Uh, well, in the private equity world, uh, there's usually a sensitivity model created for any business. You know, if your price drops by X, what does it do to your profitability? So usually it's an X, Y axis graph. The middle is our projected profitability and our, so profitability on one side, projected production on yeah. the other. So the very middle of the XY axis is this is what we expect to produce. This is what we expect it to cost or what we expect to get paid. And as you go lower left, 
it is lower production, lower price. And as you go higher right, it's higher production, higher price. When we started adjusting or, or measuring the sensitivity of an egg production facility, a penny on the dozens, because that's how you measure it, is a dozen yeah. eggs, that's the unit. But one penny difference made them in the red. This was a very large commercial egg facility. I believe we were talking, like, it was in the tens of millions yeah. of birds just to start with. And a penny on the dozens made it unprofitable. Gosh. So if we think about that and we extrapolate that to your black carton eggs, which I'm sure are awesome, don't get me wrong. And those eggs are $2 a dozen more expensive than commercial yeah. eggs. And we already know that a penny on the commercial guys makes them unprofitable. Look at the, the uh, proportion that it has to change yeah. for those guys over here with the black cartons to be profitable. And good for you that you can buy those and you like them. And I would, sh I, I understand the different color of yolks you're talking about. I've seen it. Uh, and the flavor can be different. I mean, we've had, we've had some different products in different parts of the world that you can taste the difference. Um, the only thing I really talk about at scale, when we start talking about what people buy, how they feed their families and things like that. And, uh, people have heard me say this on other podcasts as well. All the food is safe. And if you can feed your family, please do so yeah. in the best way you can. And some of the people that really shame on, you need to do grass finish. You need to this, you need to that, man, you know, 10% of our country is food insecure. They don't know where their next meal is coming from. Why don't we focus on that yeah. first? And that is really the mission of our company is trying to bridge that gap so that people have food. Um, and, you know, to a point you made at the very beginning of the podcast about uh, people being able to have food and all these different things and, and also have an opinion about agriculture. The reason they have time to have an opinion about agriculture and they have the ability to voice that opinion and the energy to pick up the fight is because they have readily available food because a hungry man has one problem. Mm -hmm. A fed man has many. And I think a lot of people take that for granted. Yeah. And I'm not saying the system is perfect in any measure, whether it's cattle or chickens or whatever, we all have things we should do better and that's one of the reasons we have a company is we are striving to do better. And luckily the market is supporting yeah. that. Uh, so if we talk about the beef side to kind of wrap up the question in my five minute diatribe, <laughs> if we talk grass finished versus grain finished, uh, there's a gentleman not far from you. He lives in Tampa. His name is Danny Vega. The guy is a, is a beast. I mean, he's big in the keto and carnivore space, uh, lifts all the time. He's kind of my go-to health yeah. guy because uh, you got to have one of those unless you want to know everything, and mm -hmm. that's just not any fun. And he described it to me one day when we talked about the nutritional difference between grass-finished and grain-finished. And they will tell you, you can read that uh, grass-finished is five times higher, whatever the number is, in omega-3s or 6s than grain-finished. Well, on the numbers, that is correct. But that's because beef doesn't really have very much omega in it. So if it's five times more of zero, it's still basically zero. So if you want omega, eat some right. fish. 
So if we start breaking it down to that degree, probably the biggest metric to use when you start talking about beef is grain finished beef has a 67% lower carbon footprint than grass finished. And that's something that is talked about in the inverse a yeah. lot. People will say grass finished has lower carbon footprint because you're not feeding them grain, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But by the sheer cattle production numbers, that's incorrect. What makes that difference? Because if you take a grass finished animal to the same physiological endpoint as a grain finished animal, it takes a year or a year and a half longer because they don't gain as right. much because they aren't on a concentrate diet. They aren't converting as well. And then throw in the fact that if you're in Colorado, we have a really great summer for grazing cattle, but eight months out of the year, we can't be on pasture. So now you have to harvest that grass, which, you know, is hay of yeah. some sort. You have to store that energy in a way that can be fed through the winter. And it's not as dense. It's harder to transport. The general carbon footprint of that entire ecosystem is exceptionally inefficient. Unless you are white oak pastures in Georgia that gets 40 inches of rain a year and they have grass yeah. all year. So it's very regionally specific. But the vast majority of the cattle production area of this country is not sustainable for grass finishing because we don't have that kind of food load or that kind of forage load. So if we think about how we feed and what we gain, you know, I'm sitting in the like a L shape of two pastures here and here. When we have cattle on grass, those cattle are going to gain around two pounds a day on grass. Now that is nutritious grass, they're eating pretty well. That's a different nutrition footprint than people down in your area in Orlando because you have good grass, but it never goes dormant. It's always yeah. growing. So from a nutritional standpoint, it's very washy is what we would call it. It has a lot of water content, but the nutrients are lower because it doesn't get a, the soil doesn't get to rest. Yeah. So there's a lot of different nutritional things that happen there. But if we take cattle to a feedlot, and we give them a balanced nutritional concentrate ration that they are stepped up to from a health standpoint for, the, for their gut biome, they're going to gain three and a half to four pounds a day. So they're going to gain twice as much daily weight. They're going to accelerate to that end point where they become a steak. Uh, they're going to have that good bright white fat that you're used to seeing in steaks that tastes like has a buttery yeah. flavor to it. And you don't get the bright white fat without a concentrate diet because if they are truly grass finished, and this is where the labels get a little weird. If they are truly grass finished, that fat is going to be a yeah. yellow because that fat's going to have a lot of, it's going to have a lot of beta carotene in it. But when you go to a concentrate diet that limits the beta carotene, you flush that fat, it becomes bright white, which is that buttery fat you're used to seeing. And that is because they were on a concentrate diet. So the, the caveat to all of this is if you're buying because of the of the label it has and you don't understand the science of what's happening to get to that label, you could be paying extra for a product that does not represent your expectations. So there is a, a, a air quotes grass finished producer in Colorado and their fat on their steaks is the brightest, whitest fat you've ever seen. And if you look at their labels, it says grass finished the last 30 days. 
So what they'll do is they will feed them on a concentrate, typical grain-fed ration for 120 days, which is standard, and then top them off at the end with a grass-finished ration. So you have the flavor they want, they can put the label they want, but it doesn't actually reflect the environmental standards they're trying to get people to buy for. Well, and that, you know, labeling in the food industry in general is such a freaking mess. So much of it is puffery. So much of it is garbage. So much of it you're counting on, you know, uh, third-party extra regulatory uh, organizations to put their stamp to verify. And some of those are better than others, and some of those are, you know, are, are legit, and some of them are, you know, I think you're you're paying for for their stamp. Um, but, yeah, that's that's not, uh, you know, the, the grass-fed and the uh, non-GMO industry, you know, those labels, you know, they're not alone in the food space of just being, uh, you know, pliable. Well, the, so our standard shtick on labels is if you want to understand the label and you can't talk to the person that did the paperwork to get the label put together, the label becomes naturally suspect because it's a marketing pitch. So if you go to the grocery store and you find the prettiest, most well put together logo and label package you've ever seen, and the beef is $10 a pound, how much of that label was paid for by just regulatory expenses? Because to get, for instance, in the cattle space, if you take a grass-finished producer and they're labeling it organic, where that calf was born has to be organic, where that calf was raised has to be organic, and the farm it comes from has to be organic. Each one of those organic certifications is five grand not counting the internal costs of managing those systems to have those types of label claims. And so if you think about it from a very economically driven standpoint, the prettier your label and the more label claims you're making, the more money you must make to pay for all of that, which means that by and large, some of those small family farms, using air quotes for those of you that are just listening, maybe an LLC that's owned by a bigger player that's really good at the paperwork and is just trying to not put their label on it. They want you to buy something because it's perceived to have a different value. Happens in the beer industry all the time. If you start looking at the, the, what you consider family owned breweries that are actually owned by the big players, it's incredible what you're looking at. Uh, You know, there's, there's just so much stuff that happens that if the label truly matters, take that next step, go find a producer and support that producer. And I'm not saying me, I'm not saying my neighbors. I I know there's great producers in Tampa, there's great producers all over the country. And if it truly matters to you, paying for a really cool label at the grocery store, hey, do what you gotta do, but that may not be connecting you in the way you think you're being connected. So, um, and, and maybe you've answered this in a roundabout kind of way. I'm, I'm walking into the grocery store. We've established central Florida. I'm walking into Publix. Let's be honest. A lot of people like when Dixie's beef, but, uh, you know, most of us we're we're going into a Publix. If I'm going to reach, if, if I'm, if I'm looking for a ribeye and there's the just Publix packaged, you know, whatever weights are equal. Am I wasting my money if I grab one of the, 
you know, there's two big names. Well, at least around here, what I've always seen is the two same names. If I'm going to grab a grass-fed ribeye at a public, it's going to be in a package. It's going to be Strauss or Maverick. Am I throwing that money away? From a, from a, a, you know, flavor's going to be, you know, it is what it is. It's, it's objective, but nutrition, nutritional content and value. I would say there's probably sub 5% difference. But what I would say is if they're trying to sell based on a grass fed claim, what does grass fed mean? Because 85 to 95% of the U.S. cattle population qualifies as grass fed. Yeah. And believe it or not, the USDA quit regulating the claim grass fed in 2016 because it's too erroneous. Yeah. Because grass fed or grass finished, depending on where you're at, basically means you were fed a diet that did, cattle were fed a diet that did not contain grain. But depending on where you're at in the country, you could feed peas because peas are technically a legume. They're not a grain. And peas are 95% the feed value of corn. So if you're trying to get away from grain or you're trying to get away from certain things, it depends on who's doing the label paperwork. Right. Yeah. So grass-fed, everybody loves this claim of grass-fed. And I'm like, well, grass-fed means, like it literally on a package – it means that at some point in their life, they were fed a diet that didn't have grain. Well, if they really want to get crazy on the labeling and they can get an auditor to approve it, grass-fed could mean something as simple as, well, when they were drinking mother's milk from a, from a good cow out on pasture, they were not eating grain. It just depends yeah. on how you can cut the paperwork. And... Uh, so I would say in your example, knowing nothing about those two brands, I'm certainly not saying anything towards yeah, that. Yeah. I would say that you are probably even money to stick with the Publix brand because the other really interesting change in this, in this space in the last few years is, especially with COVID, that's kind of the weird one. COVID taught people to cook again. So the direct-to-consumer, high-quality protein market is stronger than it's been in a long yeah. time because, I mean, you couldn't get a Traeger. You couldn't find a smoker. Everything was everything was backordered because people were locked at home. Yeah. And if you put a bunch of people at home, they're like, well, I'm still going to – I want barbecue. Well, you know what? I'm going to buy uh, – I'm going to buy a grill. I'm going to buy this. Actually, funny story, a buddy of mine, uh, he was living in Lima, Peru at the time of the pandemic. He ordered a big green egg to his apartment building in Lima, Peru, and he goes, the dudes dropped it off, and it couldn't come in the building because of the pandemic. He had to haul oh a big green God. egg up, his, up five flights of stairs by himself. That's dedication. <laughs> but Yeah, and, and he just moved back to the States, and that big green egg made the trek in a shipping container. And so, so there's been this big shift, but... From an economic standpoint, a lot of the grocery companies, Walmart included, I mean, Walmart has their own beef beef uh, line coming up right now that they've put together. They're harvesting them all in Georgia because they've realized that the people that are searching for high-quality meat are going to spend more on impulsive buys. They usually have higher disposable income. So I would be shocked, not, again, not knowing anything about the other two brands of Publix. Yeah. 
I would be shocked if we did a taste test between the two and the beef at Publix wasn't really good. And I'm not saying that anything's wrong with the other brands, but some of the grocery stores are stepping up their game because they realize that they can get the meat connoisseurs in there. They buy a ton of other stuff. Yeah. Well, go back to the other piece on the environmental side. And I know, you know, impacts of carbon emissions on our climate is a whole other podcast with a whole other slew of experts. But to the extent that that's something that someone is concerned about, um, kind of comparing, you know, process and product wise uh, from, uh, you know, you mentioned that it's a lower carbon output for a, for a feed or grain fed or finished cow than, than for, uh, you know, grass fed and finished. How does that then compare to, um, and I, I think they're, they're one of the ones that are doing it, kind of the, the regenerative farming, which I think is kind of what white oak pastures is doing is, is that regenerative piece, right? Where that process, as they look into it, if I understand it right, is actually carbon negative where they're sequestering carbon in the soil. You know, what's your, what's your take on that? Or how does that all compare? Well, regenerative ag is a buzzword that people love to use. Well, the general stance I have is, have you been farming there more than 20 years? You're probably naturally regenerative regenerative anyway, right? So there are new, I wouldn't even say new, there are different practices people can use in different regions. So regenerative for white oak pastures is going to be different than regenerative here. Or uh, like you've probably heard the term intensive grazing, intensive rotational grazing. That's something people 40 miles from me can do. We can't do it at this ranch. Just based on soil type, based on the type of grass you have, based on your climate cycles and different seasons of the year. So by and large, regenerative agriculture is something that almost every ag producer is working on. I mean, if you're a corn farmer, your asset is not corn. Your asset is not your house. Your asset is not all your tractors and your $200,000 combines, your asset is your dirt. You have to maintain that soil profile or you don't have a business. And in most ag businesses, if you look at a farm or a ranch or any combination of the two, in general, the long game of agriculture is appreciation of real estate. That's it. I mean, on, th- on this ranch here, yeah, you make a little bit of money, but that money is used to feed the family. It's used to grow grow the business. It's used to do any number of things. But the massive amount or the majority amount of income is real estate appreciation, which quite frankly is almost never captured because you don't sell the property. Right. <laughs> it, you know, what's my father-in-law going to retire on? Because most of his stuff is in real estate that he wants to carry on in a generational aspect. So if we think about the term regenerative, and I'll get to kind of more of what people are trying to say, I think. The first thing I would want to dispel is the thought that everybody in agriculture is just taking and taking and taking from mother nature, because like I mentioned, my wife's family settled here 110 years ago. You can't take for a century and still have something right. left. You're constantly trying to give back. You're constantly trying to monitor it. And when people say, oh, you're a cattle rancher, cattle are your asset. Not really. The ground the cattle live on is the asset. So 
to kind of break that down, there's, there's different things in regenerative ag. So I mentioned intensive grazing. So what people talk about with regard to intensive grazing, depending on where you're at in the country, is they're going to have a section of ground. And a section is a legal definition. It's a square mile. They'll have a well in the middle, and they will have a four-part quadrant system. And if you're somewhere like white oak pastures in Georgia and you get a ton of grass, you're going to put, you're going to overload almost a section or a part of that section. And you're going to rotate them. And you're going to do it very, very strategically so that you hammer down the grass load, which it uh, instigates new growth, which instigates different things. Because as the cattle walk on it, they puncture the root zone. It allows more water in. And all these different right. things are happening. And you do this with a very intensive process. Now, the alternate to that is what we do at our ranch where we can't do that because we're in sand. We would destroy the pasture if we did that. So what we have is a lower load and we have multiple waters in the same section of ground to encourage them to move to different sections on their own in a very unintensive way to minimize the impact on the soil profile. Right. Both of those, I think you would probably agree, man, it sounds like you're doing the best you can with your environment. And that's really the, the message of most of agriculture is a uh, best practice in Georgia is not a best practice in Colorado. And quite frankly, a best practice on this piece of real estate I'm sitting on may be different three miles away. Yeah. And so regenerative is thrown around a lot, but by and large, ag is trying to be regenerative because without a regenerative mindset, you don't exist. Yeah. That's, you know, it's, it's almost embarrassing how revelatory that thought is. And it goes to, and this is something I've, I've spoken to on the podcast, um, really the whole time I've been doing it in, in pieces, but more here recently, I've had, um, you know, Robbie Kroger from blood origins on, and just th this topic of being connected to the land and connected to our food has come up a lot lately. And even it's a little convicting in that my own disconnect from how my food makes it to, you know, my, my green mountain grill is, uh, like it, it just hadn't crossed my mind. I hadn't ever had to give thought to the fact that, uh, you know, raising cattle isn't just raising cattle. Like what Randy Booth was doing here in Osceola County when I was in high school with him and the way his family was raising cattle doesn't work where you're at, doesn't work out, you know, out farther west, doesn't work in Georgia, that it's it's different for the land. And that's why I like conversations like this is putting that thought into people's brains and that's, you know, uh, it's, it's crazy too. get, uh, you know, I'm really enjoying the conversation in that it's crazy how much of our perception of your industry is just positive or negative. It's just marketing. Uh, it's, it's labels, it's framing of videos. Uh, it's, it's words like, uh, you know, factory farming and monocropping and regenerative. And, uh, there's just so much more to it. Uh, you know, it's, I'm, I'm, I'm glad, hopefully the, the listeners are into it cause I, I'm, I'm loving getting into it, man. Well, it's a, it's a weird process because, you know, just a generation ago, people were, you know, one or two generations removed and you start adding additional generations that are removed from the farm, man, it's, it, it you just really don't have any concept. Uh, you know, I've got some business partners that live in Denver and they grew up on a farm and their daughters didn't. And their daughters, when you start talking to them, they will, I mean, they will espouse carbon footprint. This is bad. Beef is bad for you. I mean, I know of teachers in the Denver proper area that have told my nieces and nephews, 
you should really limit the beef you eat because beef is bad for the environment. And we are quite, just quite frankly, we are outnumbered to a degree that if we don't have more people trying to do what I'm doing today for however many people may listen or they go, man, that guy talks a lot. Uh, we're, we got to try to do our yeah. part. And when we think about that disconnected, that disconnection of like my comment about regenerative ag, I know, and this is the ag industry is exceptionally guilty of this. I could say regenerative ag to 10 people in ag and 10 of them, well, eight of them are going to go, oh, those, those hippies, this, those hippies, that, because they don't think they're being regenerative. They are not giving themselves the credit yeah. to say, well, we can't do that here. That's nonsense. I'm like, no, but you have to tell the story. You have to engage with people so they understand. Um, I talked to Dr. Sean Baker, uh, I, we've been doing business with him for three or four years. He's the guy that wrote the carnivore diet uh-huh. book. Uh, great dude. And I asked him one day, I said, Hey, if you could tell me, and this was like 2019, I said, Hey, if you could give me something to market on my beef company, what do I need to do? Like, what am I missing? He goes, you raise a superfood. He goes, your cows should wear capes. It's like the way that you guys have to do this is incredible. And he goes, and you guys, as beef beef producers, not just me, but all the rest of the beef right. producers, you guys are so humble and so so behind the scenes. You don't want to step out and beat your chest and say we produce superfood because beef is the most bioavailable protein source we have. It's quite frankly, well, in my humble opinion, as a meat snob, it's the best one out there. We do the very best we can with the resources we have across every region of this country and the rest of the world. And if you talk to someone in Eastern Asia or you talk to someone elsewhere in the world, and a lot of times their definition of a luxury meal is an American beefsteak. That's freaking awesome, man. That's so cool to be able to be that center point. Because a whole other concept to think about from a uh, regional population or global population concept, uh, and this was back in 2018, I was at the Idaho Cattlemen's Convention in Boise. They said that there's a billion people with a B that are going to be in the middle class in developing parts of the world in the next decade. So we're almost done with that. We're halfway through that. And a lot of people will say, well, why does that matter in agriculture? The easy answer is because if you're in a lower socioeconomic group and you are climbing the ladder, the first thing you change is your food. And typically the first thing you change is your protein because you can get a steak instead of a chicken breast. And so if you think about that from an international demand standpoint with the you know, king of the mountain of the beef world being American beef for most people. A5 Wagyu is a whole other conversation, of course. But the sheer demand on the market and what we're going to need to produce as a, as a world population, not just in our little spot on the globe, is pretty nuts. Yeah. And I believe in that same meeting at the Idaho Cattlemen's, they said that, you know, in the next 40 years, the world has to produce as much food as we've produced in the last 800 due to population growth, population density, et cetera, et cetera. 
while at the same time, some of our best farm ground in the U.S. is being turned into subdivisions. Gosh. Yeah, it's funny as you're talking about it, I'm thinking, yeah, I, I've never uh, been around somebody who just had a kid, just got a raise, just graduated, next thing, and said, let's go get some grilled chicken breast. We're going out to eat. Let's, no, you're going, you're going out for steak. That's it's right. the champagne of meats. Well, you can use that tagline for Colorado craft beef if you want. Cham- the champagne of meats. That's like champagne of my meat. gift to you. All right. <laughs> the sing- the single malt scotch of meats yeah. is more my speed. Um, I like it. But yeah, and, and it's really interesting because if we think about how is agriculture tied to the population, putting food on the table is a moniker that exists in every vertical across every part of the world. And it all ties back to your ability to feed your family as your measure in society. Yeah. Well, us in the agriculture, agriculture industry are striving to make it as beneficial for you as possible to be able to put food on your table in a reasonably priced manner. And uh, some of us are just trying to get the story out. So maybe we don't have that regulatory concern you mentioned earlier. Well, and it, it's important to have that background because it's it's easy to um, it's easy to sell the message of of ag just kind of uh, raping and pillaging and bleeding the land dry when you think it's a big faceless corporation that only cares about the dollar that only cares about their bottom line. But when you understand that even when it's that bigger company that may have processed and packaged that meat that's in your freezer or in your fridge where they obtained it wasn't from some giant farm they owned um, that's that nobody cares about. It was from many, many family farms where they have been on it for multiple generations. It is their source of income. It is their livelihood. It is their inheritance. And they very much do care about that land and the viability of that land. And that's, that's tougher to sell as a big evil. And I think that's why, you know, you don't hear that story as much. Yeah, and it doesn't fit the narrative, right? I mean, I I love our country. I mean, I'm as much of a red-blooded American as anybody out there. And I, I love that we have the ability to have such discord. Uh, I just wish that sometimes people were able to put down their own opinion to really understand the rest of yeah. it. You know, I mean, that that's, that's why I love jujitsu not to totally derail the conversation. Man, I roll with vegans. They know I'm the beef guy and we make tofu and steak jokes back and forth. They're hysterical. I'm like, man, think of how much better that loop choke would have been if you ate a steak. And he starts laughing. He goes, dude, if you ate tofu, it would probably have been easier for you to get out. Maybe you'd have better energy because we find this common ground with this common language that is, you know, simulating murder with your friends. But it's also an ability to bridge a gap, have some common ground, and respect for the other yeah. guy. And I think that that very humble approach to life that people like Jocko talk about or people like Andy talk about, you know, I think Andy Stump's tagline is, I don't want people to do it my way. I want them to be informed in their decision. Yeah. And I couldn't agree with that more. So when we talk, you know, I've had some people get – I've gotten some nasty messages from people that hear me on podcasts. And I've also had some really insightful messages from people that I've met personally that hear some, hear me talk about something on a podcast. 
they'll send me the, the snippet, the soundbite and ask me to explain yeah. it. And that's what it's yeah. about. It's about getting that connection. And then there's some people that you just aren't going to connect with. That's just how it goes. But man, the number of positive interactions or the number of people that I mean, we get Christmas cards from some of our customers, uh, shout out to Matt in Maryland. He, I think he sent us the first one that I was like, holy crap, dude. Like when you're that much of a part of someone's family dynamic, they're like, Hey, we got to send our beef guy a, a Christmas yeah. card. I mean, that's what this is all about. And that's what ag has been about since the beginning of right. time. Well, and it's, you know, there, there's a lot that, that shifted and this is going to sound curmudgeonly and maybe it is, uh, right. It's always those darn kids and they're, they're rock and roll and I'm definitely hitting that stage in life, but <laughs> there's so much that was, I feel like ingrained in our societal culture. Um, you know, as you and I grew up in America that I, you, you just don't, I feel like you don't hear it or you don't see it anymore where it's like a, the generation or two behind ours, I think the phrase, you know, breadbasket of the world would be very foreign to them. And obviously we've not taught, we've, you know, we're not talking about grain so much here, but really that, that statement isn't about, you know, bread either. It's about, um, you know, America's ability to, to produce beyond our need and, and provide that and feed the world. And that used to be such a point of pride. You know, even as, as I was growing up, I, and I don't ever hear that as a brag about America. I don't ever hear that as a point of, of pride about America anymore. Yeah, and I would take it to another dimension maybe, and maybe we're going to get real philosophical here. I don't hear a lot of people that have a lot of positive things to say about much. Yeah. I mean, maybe they're upset with this, they're upset with that, they're upset with the other thing whether it's their job, whether it's people our age, or if you talk to, you know, I, I speak to college groups relatively regularly and you start talking to them and, oh, this isn't a bad spot and that's in a bad spot. Like, and we could get off on the social media tangent, but in general, people just seem so disengaged with positivity as a concept that I don't know how we turn that around. Yeah. But I, I just like, what do people talk about with pride? Like, I don't, I can't really think of something and be like, man, people are really prideful about this, that, or the other thing, because for everything I can think about of one person being like, I'm proud of this. There's 10 people surrounding the guy that want to think he's bragging. He's being arrogant. He's being whatever it might be instead of, you know, back to the jujitsu gym, you know, I've lost a ton of weight. I'm still a, I'm not a spazzy white belt. I'm just a learning white yeah. belt. But every one of those dudes, if you're not supportive, you are politely or maybe not so politely educated in that yeah. <laughs> by the enforcers at the gym. And those guys don't come back or they change their attitude. Uh -huh. And I just don't know that I don't know how to get that across to the masses of being so thankful for something as simple as a food system that operates in your country. Yeah. Uh, I, I've got a good friend of mine that uh, asked me a very loaded question probably two weeks ago. And she said, you know, you guys always say that you're, that the U S has the safest, most regulated, most abundant food system in the country or in the world. What do you, what do you think that means? It's a really insightful question because that's a talking point used by a ton of people. Yeah. 
my comment was, well, respectfully, what do we consider safe? Are we talking how many foodborne illnesses per capita? Are we talking how many deaths per foodborne illness? Like, how are we going to start to measure that? But the other more interesting concept that came to light with me really thinking through the question was, well, how many countries on the globe have what I would refer to as a food system? Take Costa Rica. They don't do a lot of farming. There's a lot of fisheries around there, but they import almost everything. Right. They don't have food processing. Yeah. They can't make, they don't make ketchup. They don't make barbecue sauce. I mean, they don't have packaging materials. Like, so how many countries worldwide would we say have a air quotes food system that feeds at least half of their population? It's not a big number. Yeah. So on just that metric alone, I feel like a lot of people could look around and say, you know, we got food available in this country. That's a pretty good starting point. Maybe some things aren't perfect, but what do we adjust? Because we're fed. We don't have to worry about that, you know, little thing that has to happen, you know, ideally three times a day. What can we adjust for the positive? Because a lot of people don't even start where we do. Yeah. Well, and, you know, talking about, you know, some, a man who's hungry has, has one problem. When all your food has come from the grocery store, and that's the case for the majority of, uh, for me, for most of the people listening to me, you, it gives you a false sense of security in that area. Um, in that, you, we, that's just always been there for us. Now we got a little taste of this during COVID when all of a sudden, oh, well, this section of the short store is empty. Now this sec, now I can only buy one pack of bacon this trip. Okay, well, I'll go to the parking lot. I'll come back. I'll buy another pack of bacon. But we got a little taste of that. But when it's when that system's running optimally, smooth, that grocery store's got three days of food in it. There's no warehouse out back. And if that, if anything from that, that delivery system to, you know, when there's issues with the shipping, whether you have a supply side issue or not, it's, it's real easy in America to end up real hungry, real fast. Uh, Not too many things have to go too wrong. Um, A big, a big storm like we've just had down here, Um, you know, uh, a, a serious attack, which luckily we haven't seen yet on our power grid. Man, it's a bad deal. It's a real bad deal real fast. Uh, and I think just understanding what, what goes into all that and, and starting to have some appreciation for how easy that is to, I'm hungry, I'm going to go get food. Understanding that some of the people listening might might not say, I'm hungry, I might go get food tomorrow. Um, which is a reality for some, for some people still too. Um, but that we have that, that freedom to not worry about that comes down to businesses and families like yours. Well, and, and it comes down to the truckers. I mean, there's a lot of people. So, uh, I, I don't know if I want to say this publicly, but I have my class A CDL. I can drive semis. Not a lot of people know that that's not something you share in the ag community unless you want to be in a truck. And I, really don't like to do that if I don't have to. But the number of people that hate on the trucks on the highway and they get upset with the delivery drivers and they get upset with the inconvenience of these large vehicles. 
And that is a full-time job. And I, I've, I've, I've driven tractors, I've operated combines, I've driven grain trucks, I've driven semis. The most stressful thing I have done, hands down, is run a semi in a very large populated area. Because you've got people swerving in and out of traffic, you are not that nimble. Um, I've hauled heavy equipment through major population centers where you're actually hanging off the sides of the trailer. It is sketchy. Yeah. And and just some of the general stuff, like back to Mike Rowe, you know, one of his comments on the intro to dirty jobs. I'm trying to understand what people do to make civilized or uncivilized life civilized for the rest of us. I I, I would give anything to buy that guy a beer just to say thank you, because yeah. out of all the people, I think he's the most devoted to having a voice for ag and some of the rest of us to just, you know, work with dirt under our fingernails. Um, so it's just interesting how disconnected people are from just how life has to happen. You know, like you guys have a unit storm. How many linemen were lined up on the North end of Florida or stationed throughout Florida waiting for power grids to get completely detonated yeah. so they could go in and put them back together only to be told they weren't doing it fast. Enough. Oh yeah. There, there were not to belabor the point. There were 42,000 linemen queued up before this storm from all over. I heard somebody at, uh, at work just today talking about, they had a lineman working out in front of their house from Canada today. Uh, so from all over, yeah. but one of the, the bigger utilities down here says, said everyone needs to understand there are areas in which we are not repairing. We are rebuilding. And in the meantime, I was super irked with Spectrum that I've been without my internet for four or five days. And I still am. I, right. stand, I stand by that. Spectrum sucks regardless of the hurricanes, just so we're very clear. But again, that's another podcast topic. So I am I'm 20 miles from the tower that we get our internet from, and it is a microwave-based wireless signal. So I think your problems with Spectrum are probably manageable. Now, if you if you've skimmed, I know you found me because of Brian. If you skim the podcast, though, you know we like to do a lot of tech. We like to do some some space. I'm a big space nerd, bro. You got to get you some Starlink. Actually, I found a buddy of mine. He has an extra Starlink hook. That's awesome. And he's like, I'll just I'll just give it to you. I'm like, great. Now it's interesting though because where we live, uh, he's like ten miles from here. Uh, he's like, I've got 300 meg there, but if you go, he's got a ranch. Uh, just outside of Fort Collins, up into the mountains, yes. he goes. I get forty meg there. So it's very, de- very determinate about where things are pointing. Yeah. So I'm really curious to get that hooked up. Yeah, but I'm telling, dude, I can, I can watch Falcon Nines launch from my front yard all day long, and I do. My son's way into it. I'm way into it. Uh, they're launching today or tomorrow. They're launching astronauts, but they're tossing up more Starlink satellites like once a week. SpaceX has launched more than one rocket per week all year long. It's insane. Wow. And then once they start, you know, launching Starship with the version two satellites, it's a whole different, it's a whole different beast. It's going to be a, a game changer for rural access. It already has been in a lot of ways, but uh, it's. So I've got a, I've got a total sidebar story for you. A buddy of mine is from down your direction. He grew up in Cocoa okay. Beach and, the, and his parents worked at Canaveral. And he was running fishing boats out of Cocoa Beach. And the last time they launched a shuttle, 
like all the charter boats in that area were chartered so people could go offshore. And he's like, yeah, we went out on that last launch and it was cloudy. So they were delaying, delaying. So we, you know, tossed out some lines. He said they hooked onto a great white. They got the great white within like 40 feet of the boat announced they were going to launch and the dude made him cut the line so they could go watch the launch instead of landing the great white shark. (laughs) Oh, that's a very Florida story. That's about as Florida as it gets right there. Yeah. They're they're good dudes. They, they've, uh, were my buddies in the keys that I would go down and just hang with them for like a week every summer. Yeah. Well, I, I, I want to tie some of this stuff off in that, um, I've always been a big fan and, and we've kind of touched on this tangentially and of, uh, Mark Sisson's message around nutrition. Um, and I, I like what Mark says and he, he's, um, if you haven't ever heard of Mark Sisson listeners, I've talked on him a lot, but like, uh, primal kitchen and the primal diet, that's all Mark. It's, it's that same space as keto and carnivore and, uh, you know, paleo. Didn't he write, didn't he write the primal blueprint? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that was his big yeah, thing, and Mark, Mark and, and he's he's pivoted and done some in the keto space now, and he's all about metabolic flexibility. But what I love is Mark really gives his information away for free. A lot of these guys do. Like, if you don't want to spend money on like Rob Wolf's book, you know, listen to the podcast. It's the content's there, and uh, you know the the primal diet, the primal blueprint. The way Mark System breaks it down is, um, you know, eat meat, fish, fowl, and eggs, a bunch of vegetables. Uh, some nuts and a little bit of fruit. And in all of those categories, get the best quality that you can afford. And I say that to say we've touched a lot on like, you know, my very high dollar eggs and, uh, you know, craft beef is right in your name. It's, you know, you're not a bottom tier product that you're selling. Um, and, but I want to make sure that listeners understand, like, I don't think my message, I don't think your message is, you know, go, go broke, go out and doing this is particularly your message is, um, you know, that beef that, that isn't that that top tier is still higher quality than maybe even you've been led to believe at this point and making the move to those things in those categories. You can't go out and buy yourself a, a ribeye regardless of how it was fed or raised at this point, still getting some decent ground beef and eating that instead of the trans fat, highly processed garbage you maybe would have eaten instead Eat, eat that with some salad, maybe some nuts, maybe some vegetables is going to be a step in the right direction for you health wise. And you know, wherever you can do that on that scale, all that being said, and I know this isn't really what you're about and your message. I do want you to hype what you guys are doing because you do have an incredible product. And I know you feel like, you know, if I go buy from the, the guy at the farmer's market here locally, that's raising cattle, that you're happy with that too. But I think what you're doing is worth filling the the listeners in on what, so, uh, you know, you sent me this amazing box of beef, everything I've cooked out of it's fantastic. I got big plans for the roast that was in there. I haven't decided what I'm going to do with the ribeyes yet. I don't know if I'm going to do my normal thing or if I'm going to tone it back some to not cover up the flavor. We got a great barbecue joint in central Florida called four rivers. And they sell their coffee rub that they use on their brisket, but I love it on a pellet grilled reverse seared steak. Turns out phenomenal. So I don't know what I'm going to do with that yet. But what makes your your beef so special? Well, first thing I would say, Kale, is you should cook it the exact same way you do every other ribeye, just so that you already have a baseline and you reset your level. Because where everything you cook might be a solid seven, we're going to be like a solid nine and a half on our All right, ribeye. I believe it. How do, you, how do you like the plug? I thought that was a good uh, product. Oh, no, that's 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 good stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, so some of the things we're able to do to really augment quality and things like that is basically in our name, craft beef. You know, if, if I say, hey, we're going to have a craft beer, uh, let's be fair. You think you need a man bun, you need a beanie, all the things. It's not quite that bad. But what we are able to do with craft beef is what the craft beer industry can do. We can do things at a different scale. We can do things with different ingredients. We can do things with different processes because we are not huge. That's the benefit. Yeah. Uh, so one of the things we touched on earlier is the 21-day dry aging carcasses. The vast majority of people in the commodity beef space don't even know you can do that because it's so alien in big production. Yeah. Um, and that 21-day dry age as a half carcass is a big deal. Um, you get a lot of enzymatic reaction that makes it more tender. You remove a lot of the water. So as you cook it, you get a much better presentation. You don't get the water loss. It's not as porous. Um, so, for instance, a, a really good example, uh, if you buy a whole packer brisket at the grocery store and it's 15 pounds, and you trim it and you cook it and you get it to that perfect 203 degrees and it's perfect on your pellet grill, you are probably going to end up with about 50% finished product from where you started on weight. If you do that with our brisket, it's closer to 65 or 70% just because of the lack of water weight, because it was hung, it was aged. So if you just start thinking about the economics well, you're going to yield, you know, between 50 to 70%. That's actually a 40% higher yield. Your price point can be higher. So actually, there's a lot of people that miss the math. They think, oh, it might be expensive. Oh, look at the price per pound. But when you're buying less water, the flavor profile is different. Yeah. It, it's much more moist because you don't, and I, I know people don't like that word, so <laughs> it is what it is. <laughs> Um, but you don't have, well, and I'm kind of a cooking nerd. So as you cook a steak that hasn't been aged, some of that water loss comes out. Well, what that water loss does when you cook is it actually creates pathways for it to start losing moisture. We don't have that issue because we have a lower water content. So that actually it remains a much more juicy piece of meat. Uh, everything we do, the cattle come from us. Yeah. I mean, we don't buy meat and put it under our label. Everything is curated through our process. Uh, we dictate health protocols. Um, we dictate breed. We dictate when they're harvested. Uh, we actually just Saturday, you know, two days ago, we took over operations of the feed yard that we use. So it's now, now within our purview. Uh, that feed yard we've used for four years now. Uh, great guy that owns it. Uh, he's got some other business stuff he's doing, and he didn't have time. Uh, so we actually took on a partnership with him to actually be the operators of that business. So when you call us and you say, hey, I got this, this steak, and I'm not too sure, we can tell you, well, it came from, you know, the calf was born in Livermore, Colorado, at this guy's place. And then he came to our place on December 20th, and he went out on grass on April 15th. And then on August 15th, he went to the feed yard. And he was at your house in time for Christmas after he met the butcher. So those are not things a lot of people can maintain the hold on all the way through the process. Because sometimes you need to be paid more than, you know, once or twice a year. Or just 
different attachment right. to that. And then when you take my lovely wife's ability with the nutrition side of things, and we're doing things in a very science minded way yeah. to derive that steak quality from the day that that animal is born. That's something that other people in the industry don't do as well. Um, so one of the common misconceptions in the direct to consumer beef space is that, Oh, these guys raised this calf for beef production. Well, that's not always the case. So sometimes in the cattle chain, you have lower quality steers that aren't going to sell well in the commodity market, or you had one that got sick, or you had one that was born two months later than everybody else. So they conglomerate these things that didn't fit. That's what they end up feeding at some of these direct-to-consumer ranches on the smaller scales. And so what you're getting isn't, and I'm not saying this is always the case, but what you're, you're sometimes getting is something that wasn't destined for a box from day one. Yeah. Where every calf that we have that then goes through the process and goes out with our label on it was raised on purpose. You know, we are grain finished on purpose. It's not because of economics. It's not because of this thing. It's because of a bunch of different factors. But we do it to guarantee the quality of the product that's going to arrive at your house. Uh, we've had people ask us to do grass finished. And we can't guarantee the quality of grass finish, so we won't do it because we aren't going to jeopardize what our brand has become known for. Right. Well, whatever you guys are doing, keep doing it because it's working. It's amazing. Uh, you know, listeners know I'm in Central Florida. I got my shipping notification from your team on Monday. I had a box of beef sitting on my doorstep on Wednesday. Um, Florida, I don't know if you know this, it's not very cold down here. Uh, it's a little warm. Got hung up at work that day. Left that box out front. Now, I'm not recommending this to customers, but it stayed out front longer than I would have wanted it to. Got home. Everything was so well packaged. No issues with the temperature. Everything was frozen. Everything was in uh, great shape. And just, uh, you know, again, there's there's sometimes, and again, not, perception isn't always reality, but it it looks like healthy meat. It looks like happy cows. Uh, and it delivers on the palate, uh, man. You know, I, I'm no chef. I posted some pictures of uh, of my strip steaks, and I did. It's funny that you you mentioned the dry aging because I noticed, yeah, uh, you know. So I see, I I, pat, I patted them dry, I seasoned them pretty lightly with salt and pepper, and I stuck them in the oven at like I don't know 250 until they hit around like 120 or 125. And when I pulled them out to pat them dry before I did my sear, I, there wasn't much to dry off. It wasn't like it typically is when I'm doing a reverse sear like that. Um, so it's cool to hear that that's, that's why. And then, you know, hit them, hit them with the sear and the butter. And my, I've got a three-year-old and a, about to turn five-year-old. And they eat like three-year-olds and five-year-olds, right? It's a constant battle. Love mac and cheese one day, not the next day, but it's all the staples. My three-year-old daughter caught whiff of my wife's steak, asked for a bite, and ate about a third of it before it was all was all said and done and that's that is abnormal and i you know when i cook when i cook meat it's i've got a knack for it i'm i'm pretty okay every once in a while i can get her on a pork chop but man she tore that steak uh apart and uh and you know for for a value proposition again uh for me are are you gonna buy could you go buy cheaper meat yeah 
would you know where it came from? Would you know the quality of life? Could you could you reach out to, you know, the person who raised that cattle? No, that none of that's going to happen. Um, but you can also really easily spend more money. Like I, you know, from from what I've been buying, where occasionally I'll I'll hit our our gourmet butcher or you know whatever I'm buying, um, I've easily spent more on cuts. Uh, than what I would pay to get from you and not enjoyed the steak as much as I have the the product that you guys sent me. So just don't have enough good well, things the, to, to say. Well, one of the things we've really focused on doing is creating a value proposition that's as fair as it can be for everybody. Uh, you know, we, we're very cognizant with our pricing. Uh, we haven't raised our beef pricing in three years. Now, that being said, FedEx has no qualms about raising their prices, so our shipping has had to change a little bit. But, you know, we luckily control enough of our chain, and we're getting more and more in-depth at holding onto the reins of that, that we are trying to monitor the pricing to the customer because we want to create as many opportunities for people to eat beef as we can. And one of the things that we've been very focused on doing is keeping those prices modulated keeping them similar. You know, if you look on the website, we have multiple different packages. You can buy a griller box, you can buy a variety box, and some people want to customize. Well, we can certainly do that. The difference is a certain box type that we've put together on the website maximizes our shipping ability, mm -hmm. which decreases prices per pound. So we've been very, very diligent, you know, to use the term I just used about we grain finish on purpose everything we do is very purpose driven. Yeah. So a certain box is built a certain way because we know how we have to ship to be competitive. So if we're going to ship to Florida, it's better to do it this way. If we're going to ship to Oklahoma, it's going to be this way. Uh, and that is one of the things that, you know, I do some business consulting, et cetera. If you're not doing something with purpose, you know, if you're, well, it, it worked this way. We'll just keep trying that. You know, like the software you use for the for the podcast or what kind of grill you're going to get. Do do things with purpose. Yeah. Don't do things because it was easy. Yeah, for sure. Now, I will say um, the the one cut I didn't recognize that I got in my box was beef flap. A flap flaps one of those things that it needs a marketing word. That one needs a rename. And I I, I want uh, I want some input on how I should uh, should prep and cook that, uh, that cut, but, uh, all right. So I'm going to, I'm going to recommend two things. All for right. you. One it's, it is called flap because that's the technical term under USDA, but you've probably heard of the term bovet. Yeah. Yeah. It is a bovet. Okay. It's a bovet stick. Gotcha. It's also the bottom sirloin. So if you've been to Fogo de Chow and they slice off that really flaky, like tender, very texturized bottom sirloin. That's the same okay. stick. And that is one of those that a lot of people don't know on the website. It's listed as Bavette because flap is not a marketable. No, word. It's, not. it's just how it comes out of the fact out of the plant. But it's one of those that I'm really glad people don't like it because it leaves more for me here. Yeah. So take, take that on your green mountain grill, do the reverse sear on it. Maybe include how you like the steak on the intro to the to the podcast because it's a game changer. Okay. It's one of those that I got people that now call and order cases of it because they can't find it anywhere else. Uh, so yeah, that one that one's going to be awesome. Do that when the kids are gone. 
So what do you, uh, now I'm a big fan of, I, I, I buy some of the, the seasoning from four rivers. And then other than that, um, I swear by meat church. I mean, the stuff they're cranking out, uh, it's just fantastic. Sure. Uh, so what, what do you, uh, what do you use on that one yourself? You know, a lot of times I actually blend some of my own. Okay. Um, I'll, I actually will find, I'll go to a barbecue shop and find stuff they have on clearance and I'll bring it back and I'll mad scientist it out. Uh, but for an out of the bo- out of the bottle seasoning that works great on everything, uh, Redmond Real Salt. One, if you aren't using their salt, you should because their salt is next level. Yeah. I didn't realize salt had a difference, mm-hmm. but when you get their stuff, it tastes great. Uh, just in the last few years, they started doing some blends, and their garlic pepper is outstanding. So it's it's some of their salt with pepper and garlic, and it's. I mean, it's out of this world, out of the box. All right. So that's really my goal. I'll add it to the list to check out. Meat Church just released a new one that they're calling like Texas Sugar or something like that. That's a sweet heat that I, I really want to add that one in the rotation to to try out here too. But uh, yeah, listeners, uh, go and check out. Is the the website, is it a better podcaster? I've heard it's always, it's a bad form to be like, so where can the listeners find you? I got no problem with that question. I think that's a legit question. But website, if listeners want to check out the offerings and, uh, and put in an order. Everything is Colorado craft beef. So if you go Instagram, you go Facebook, you go coloradocraftbeef.com, it's all there. Uh, if you get any questions, uh, you can certainly email us. Uh, you know, I do appreciate, I appreciate you acknowledging the team. Well, the team is Kara and I, and uh, shout out to Amy, her workstation. That's who came in and told me the truck was here. Uh, Amy helps us out. Uh, she helps pack boxes and everything else, but that is the entirety of the team. So, <laughs> wow, that's awesome. Uh, so if, if, so if you send an email to info at Colorado craft, it lands on my wife's phone. Uh, if you call the number on top of the website, it comes to this cell phone right here, which I'm usually carrying. And, uh, you know, we're happy to answer any questions. We can do custom orders, but if you want to see the story, if you want to understand it, you know, we've been on a ton of podcasts, yeah. uh, go through the social media stuff, go through our, go through our Instagram. You know, you see pictures of the girls, you see videos of us ranching, you know, probably our favorite part of this is not that we sell steak. Our favorite part of this is showing people where it comes from and how it comes from in a way that isn't just our steak. It's the beef industry. It's agriculture. It's connection to nature. Uh, And, you know, if you ever decide to come up to Colorado, we have a jujitsu mat through the wall right here, the little 12 by 12. Uh, so you guys are always welcome at the ranch. We can let the kids go, go hang and chase turtles, and we'll uh, sit out. No, getting uh, getting tapped repeatedly and uh, eating beef in Colorado sounds like a good time, one hundred percent. So yeah, it's uh, everybody gets their turn, right? <laughs> <laughs> we were, I was, I was, uh, actually coveting the social media just this week. Some of what you were posting on Instagram, cause I've got, my wife's got family in Breckenridge and her aunt up there has always had horses and, and keeps a horse up there. We love the area up there, love the landscape and just, uh, you know, seeing you guys out on, on the horses and stuff this week. I'm like, yeah, it's time for, it's time for another Colorado trip. There you go, man. We're, uh, we are not in the direction of Breckenridge. You got to go back the other way about 90 minutes to get to us. Yeah, out the, but, out uh, the direction. If the, if the sun is just right, you can see the mountains from our house. They're 100, 100 miles away. Well, they did it right. They were on their way uh, up to Alaska to visit uh, her, um, Jade's aunt's 
cousin, brother, I don't know. They were on their way to Alaska and they stopped over in Breckenridge while they were traveling and they never left. I have no idea when this was. They, they bought a condo dirt cheap. They, they've got this big floor to ceiling glass doors on. It's like a three tier condo and the, their whole balcony, the glass overlooks their balcony and their balcony overlooks the eight mile range. And they found job, great jobs there. Uh, he worked at the, the local college there in Breckenridge and they just never left. And their condos up like, I don't know, 1500% from when they bought it or, or something like that. And they, they figured it out, whatever it is, they, they figured it out and, uh, and did it right. So, uh, we, sounds like a yeah, win for we sure. Loved it. Was, I was, I was laughing in my head earlier. Cause you said, uh, something was, was nearby. It was about an hour away. And I'm like, only, uh, out West, only in, in Colorado and out West. Do you say, yeah, no, it's just not too far away. It's like an hour. Yeah. My, uh, I train at Compound in Denver. Mm-hmm. That's my jujitsu school, and it is an hour and forty minutes toward it. Oh my gosh! So how often? So how usually, often are you rolling then? Uh, I usually go up once a week, okay. and I do a private and a class at the same time. So usually it's like a three-hour roll. Yeah. Um, but usually I'll schedule that with other business meetings up there, so it's not just drive up to go get beat up. Right. <laughs> uh, but it's you know it's part of the part of what you got to do. So, well, I mean, Jocko says it best. Jiu-Jitsu is life. I, I wouldn't say that because uh, I feel like my wife and my girls would have a different opinion. Uh, but I will say that finding, you know, to be philosophical, finding the thing that makes you a better parent is your job as a parent. Yeah. And if the thing that makes you a better parent is letting strangers, you know, simulate murder on you, maybe that's a good thing. Yeah. You know, the thing that makes my wife happier is being on our horses or being able to engage in, you know, horse activities, whether it's showing or, you know, going to some sort of competition because it gives her other goals outside of that. And, you know, that's the thing like with my health, like with, you know, losing 90 pounds. I mean, I'm in, I've got people, like I said, back home that didn't recognize me, but a big part of that was me learning how I needed to eat for me, not just from a health standpoint, but from a mental standpoint to keep myself from having this like huge backwards slide. So, you know, whether it's picking your steak or picking your workout routine or picking your hobbies, you know, what works for one guy isn't always going to work for everybody. But, you know, being able to be honest with yourself and find the stuff that really starts to resonate for you in a repeatable fashion is really what I think it is all about, yeah. you know, to your, to your comment about your friends that figured it out in Breckenridge, they figured it out too. They're like, you know, it's good for my mental health, making money on real estate and living in the mountains with that. View. Yes. There's nothing wrong with yeah. that. So, well, and it's, you know, I was bringing it in for a landing, but we love a good rabbit trail here on the South Zone podcast and carnivore isn't something that, uh, you know, I've been at it. We're at not too far from two years now that really has never come up on here much. What turned you on to the carnivore diet other than, you know, you own a cattle ranch. Uh, well, actually, Dr. Sean Baker uh, very politely pointed out to me, uh, well, let me rewind that about two months. Two months before I actually met Dr. Baker for the first time, Emma was born. Our our daughter, she's our oldest. She's three. Uh, well, I was 37 when she was born. I was sitting in the hospital holding her, and I kind of looked down at her and myself. And as I've told you before, I'm a math nerd. Well, I, I was 37. I'm like, oh, man, I'm going to be 55 when she's 18. And my health is not on a trajectory that will allow me to be the, uh, 
the type of dad I think I need to be to have two beautiful ranch girls that want to be in the dating scene when I'm 53, you know, when they're 16 and want to go to prom, I need to be able to properly motivate these young men to behave. And I wasn't on the track to that. And I wasn't on the track to being a healthy dad and, you know, being able to run around with them and this, that, and the other thing. So I started losing weight and then I officially met Dr. Baker, even though we'd been working with him for a couple of years. And, uh, he politely yet, um, very directly said, well, why the hell haven't you tried carnivore? Because you own a cattle company. I was like, well, you know, that's something I really can't argue. And the very next day when we were on our way home from the, the event in Omaha, this is right before COVID, he posted a picture of me and him together and said, Jeff has uh, stepped up and agreed to a 90-day carnivore challenge starting tomorrow. I'll post updates. And I think he, at that point, he had like 250,000 followers. Probably 30% of our customer base was people he had sent our way. And my wife looked at me. She's like, well, what are you going to do? I was like, well, I don't think I have a hell of a lot of options, to be quite frank. Yeah. I, I think it's political suicide to not engage. Uh, and I started doing that. Uh, I did pretty well for the first couple of years. I was down like 40 pounds. And then this spring, uh, got hooked up with a health coach that really started walking me through carnivore, yeah. how you're supposed, how you're supposed to eat, you know, some of the misconceptions we were doing blood glucose monitoring. Uh, we were testing ketones. So it was, I went to more of like a carnivore keto type mm-hmm. diet where we were really heavy on fat and, uh, different things. And, you know, just this year I went from 285 to 225. Oh, wow. Uh, and haven't felt better. Yeah. Like it was carnivore was great. Carnivore as a starting point was great, but learning more of that deeper understanding of my own biology. You know, if I eat this, I feel bad. If I eat this, my blood sugar changes. If I eat this, it's, I mean, and it's more science-based yeah. something Rob Wolf would be proud yeah, of. I was going to say, if you, um, um, if listeners want to try something like that, Rob, his mo- his most recent book, which it's a year or two old now, is Wired to Eat. But it it oh, it walks, go. you know, the reader through doing some of that self experimentation and saying, you know, you might not, you might do better higher carb, you might do better lower carb, you might feel better after a hundred calories of rice than you do after a hundred calories of white potato. But walks you through how to do that in a you know in an organized and regimented fashion, so you can kind of quantify that. And really start to shape the diet to yourself. Yeah. Well, and you've got to learn what works and what doesn't, not just from a scientific standpoint, but from a mental standpoint, like, man, you've, it, it's a hard change. You've got to embrace the suck a little bit to get through it. And it, when you're in that fact finding process of what works for me and what doesn't, you've got to be extra disciplined to know that the data points you're trying to reference are accurate. Mm-hmm. You know, just because you feel like you, Oh, I was healthy enough. Well, healthy enough means your data has a 20% standard deviation. Um, so if you're going to invest, you know, invest. Yeah. And if you just want to, if you just want to lose weight, there's ways to do that. But I've lost weight three or four different times in my, in my adult life. And this is the only time I've done it in a way that, I really feel like it's going to stick. And that to me is really the Achilles heel of losing weight. 
it's like I've, I've had a bunch of business people that I know that are exceptionally successful tell me making money was never the hard part. Keeping it was hard. Right. Yeah, for sure. And and I think that's the same corollary with this. Losing weight wasn't super hard. Um, but losing weight in a way that I think I can sustain was a whole other conversation. Right. And it's it's funny. It flashed me back to listening to Jordan Peterson talk about carnivore at one point, which he was doing just, I mean, strictly beef and salt and nothing else. And uh, he was talking about uh, like how important water became to him. He's like, because water's the treat. So there's still water. There's carbonated water. There's mineral water. He's like, I've, I've figured out a whole new world of water. Cause you know, he's, he's not consuming anything other, you know, than the, than the meat and the salt. Uh, but it's, uh, you know, I'm no, I'm no guru of diet and certainly no guru of carnivore, but seeing some of the benefits for people, particularly with autoimmune disorders has been really crazy. And then the work, uh, that Dr. Baker has been doing, and it seems like one of those things that shouldn't work, but it does. And data keeps backing it up and people's blood work keeps backing it up. And, uh, it's, uh, it's intriguing for sure. Yeah, I think where we're most blessed right now is there's so much data out there that you can go look at to really start to fine tune it. There's no reason to not be educated on it if you care. Yeah. Because there's also no reason to be undernourished right now because food's so plentiful. <laughs> so it's about, you know, finding your why, your driver, and, you know, understanding that even a good excuse is still just an excuse. Yes. Well, and of course, listeners, if you too choose to try out the carnivore diet, of course, talk to your doctor, all that stuff, whatever you're supposed to do. But once you make that choice, you then visit coloradocraftbeef.com for all of your carnivore diet needs. And if you do the research, uh, we have discount codes for Dr. Baker. We have discount codes for a lot of the different people in the space as well. See? Or we have subscription functionality where you get a discount as well. Now, now we're talking. Now I did want to leave you with, I like to leave guests with something. I, I tend to provide Jocko Go and there's some Jocko Go headed your way. Um, but I had this idea. Um, you know, like you were talking to Dr. Baker about marketing. Here's why I think your niche is. Do you know who Jesse Kelly is? I don't. So Jesse Kelly's a admittedly inflammatory um, political commentator. He too, um, is a Marine who was a Marine, but is still a Marine. Um, I get the distinct feeling that you will appreciate Jesse and his sense of humor. And he has made quite famous his version of burgers. They're very particular. Everybody who talks about them swears by them. And he insists among other things that they must be made with ground beef that is no less than 20% fat. And I think there's room for a marriage here of the Jesse Kelly ground beef from Colorado craft beef. That is specifically, I think what I got from you was 85, 15. Is that typically what you do for ground beef? Yep. But I, I'm thinking, you know, the Jesse Kelly packs of ground beef from you guys. I think there's potential there. Just throwing that out there. Yeah. Yeah. Make that introduction. You've got my email. <laughs> I'm going to get right on top of that. As soon as I get a hold of Jesse, so he's he's on my short list. I'd like to get. Around. I'd love to have him on the pod here someday. So, 
Yeah, I'll have to look him up. I haven't heard of him. Yeah, I, I get a distinct feeling you'll you'll appreciate, Jesse. Well, man, really appreciate you coming on. appreciate what you guys are doing um, and, the, and the work you're doing to get the, the word out there beyond, you know, what you're doing for your own business, but the the importance, um, you know, of of ag uh, to all of us, to, you know, not just to the country, but, but to the world and to, uh, you know, um, life in general and, and what it takes and, and what goes into that and the families that are doing that uh, is an important message. And uh, anything I can ever do to help get that out there, uh, man, open door here on the podcast. You are welcome anytime. Well, thank you, man. I really appreciate it. I'll leave you with one parting thought. Let's... So there's a there's an old moniker that everybody shares in the ag world, especially because the ag industry is very good at patting itself on the back, but not sharing the message. And they say that, uh, you know, in your lifetime, one time you're going to need a banker, one time you're going to need an undertaker, and one time you're going to need a good doctor. But three times a day, you need a farmer. And that's an interesting mathematical correlation that a lot of people haven't caught yet. No, that's that's a good one and, and a great spot to finish off. Well, really appreciate you coming on. Listeners, appreciate and love you as always. Um, you know, hit Colorado Craft Beef up uh, on uh, on Instagram and, and visit the website. Check them out. Give them a try. I don't think uh, you'll regret it. Share, uh, you know, when you're when you're cooking your steaks, your burgers, uh, post some pictures and, uh, you know, tag us here at the podcast. Tag, tag them. Would love to see what you guys uh, make with what you get from them. And uh, of course, listeners, when you're done with their website, you can always visit the podcast website, solid7podcast.com, solid, the number seven podcast.com. You can always find links to the latest episodes like this one, uh, upcoming events, good causes to support. We've got Chad 1000X coming up here again in November. I encourage everyone to participate in that. And, uh, you know, once you've, uh, once you've bought yourself some beef, you can use those leftover funds and uh, buy us a Jocko Go or become a Patreon supporter. But all those links are right there on the podcast website. And until next week, we're out. The Solid 7 Podcast is fueled by Jocko Go. Engineered for anyone who wants to get after it in life, pre-meeting, pre-testing, pre-negotiation, or pre-mission. If you're looking for an extra cognitive or physical edge, Jocko Go is your force multiplier. With 95 milligrams of caffeine and zero sugar, the keto-friendly Jocko Go will give you a physical and cognitive boost without the crash that you experience with average energy drinks. Visit jockofuel.com today, and you can use our promo code SOLID7, that's S-O-L-I-D-7, to get 10% off your order, get on the path, and get after it. Oh, and because lawyers exist, these statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration, and this product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. (laughs) 